0: Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people.
1: Please listen carefully.
2: What is communication?
1: The act of taking a thought from my head and putting it into your essential behavior
3: of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster. it. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Usually what I have in my head to the outside world. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us
4: into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost.
2: I think it's the ability to
3: share your innermost feelings and thoughts with others. Whatever
5: it is that we do to express
2: intent and achieve an impact.
3: Communication is the ability to
5: express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information.
1: Welcome to Speech Science, Episode 73. Speech Science, proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. Make sure you check out our website speechsciencepodcast.com that links you directly to our network friends at XPN and also check out our Patreon patreon.com slash mwhproduction and we always want to hear from you so it is 614-681-1798 or speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com and I am excited because this is the ASHA elections special so we're going to get political kind of But first, I'm always joined by the one and the only Michael McLeod in Philadelphia. What's up, buddy? How is Philadelphia treating you this week? Philly is great. The weather's been great. Uh, Things have been going well. The clinic's been real busy. So uh, I've been enjoying myself. And if you're wondering why Michael sounds like he has dulcet tones, it's taken us 35 episodes to figure out how to fix that microphone. Michael, you sound beautiful.
3: I feel like I've always sounded this way, but now that's just it's just coming across the airwaves. That is true.
1: Now we can hear it. That's right. And down in the bluegrass state, one of my oldest speech therapy friends, Michelle Wintering.
0: Hi, Matt. And as uh, as you just pointed out, how Mike, Mike sounds so fabulous. Uh, while you were figuring that out, I managed to break mine. So sorry, if mine does not come through so well tonight.
1: I was gonna say you got to love. Uh, I would say live radio, but this is as close as we get to live at this point. So that's very true. How are things treating you down in the bluegrass state?
0: Well, I think I need to go buy a new microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I'm I'm doing well here. Uh, Still fighting some of that under the weather stuff um, on my end. So I'm sorry if I'm clearing my throat a bit, but... Um, but we're doing well. Baby speech science had his nine month appointment today and uh he's going up in his percentiles, weight and height, which is awesome after having those concerns when he was little about weight gain and awesome. Breakfast for dinner shine and the rain, <laughs> but it's, at least it's
1: sunny. <laughs> that is true. That is those bacon and eggs at dinner time making you stronger. You're right, Michael. Um Did I ever tell you guys about the concerns they had about my son because he had a ginormous head? (laughs) So does my kid. What are the concerns? (laughs) So we're sitting there and mind you, I grew up with a hat size that never fit. Like I think I wear almost an eight right now, which is super hard to find in a fitted hat. So I'm used to. So do I. Yeah. Right. It's hard, right? Yeah. It's hard. So my son, my oldest, Michael, uh, was born he his head was like in the 98th percentile and he got sick like he was about 14 months old 15 months old and he got sick and his head was still in the 97th percentile but if you've seen my kid he's kind of a skinny little dude so his body was like at 13 percent, but his head was at like 97 percent. and our uh, physician's assistant said i have some concerns and we're like well What, what are your concerns about the head? And she's like, well, he might have cystic fibrosis. And we went, what? And she's like, well, he's got a big head and he's got a lot of mucus in his, in his mouth and nose. And I'm like, well, he, he didn't a week ago, he was sick. And that's why we're here to make sure that he doesn't need antibiotics. She's like, well, I think if you're good parents, you're going to go get the cystic fibrosis test. And I'm like, isn't CF hereditary? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, doesn't that mean someone in our family line needs to have CF for us to want to voluntarily do the test? And she's like, yeah, who in your family has CF? And we're like, nobody. Nobody that we know in our family line has CF. And she's like, well... The warning signs are big heads and extra mucus production. And we're like, I'm like, well, I think there's quite a few more. Uh, <laughs> so long story short, we left that pediatrician, got a new one. And my son doesn't have CF. He's just got a ginormous head and he had a head cold uh, when he was one and a half.
0: It's funny right. you you said that though, Matt, because uh, James's head circumference is about that big for percentiles and his body <laughs>
4: still
1: under 20 percent <laughs>
3: i feel their pain both of them uh i know but yeah like. when
1: she when she said uh, i think she's he's got cf i'm like that was not the diagnosis i was expecting when i came in and wanted to know if he's got the flu or something that needs an antibiotic so question the doctors if you need to ah uh, all right guys I feel this is exciting. Next week, April 16th, is the start of the ASHA elections. And I thought tonight would be a wonderful night to do the election or ASHA elections uh, special preview where we kind of just quickly talk about the candidates. And then we're going to run the interviews that we have for the VP for planning. Um, And it'll be a nice little tool for everyone out there to quickly identify who's running and maybe their positions or or why they should or should not vote for them
0: sounds good to me
1: so if you guys are okay with it we will kick it off with the president elect uh the president elect collaborates with the president to learn the role of the president to become familiar with the programs of the association uh the president serves as chair of the board of directors the president ensures that the board of directors fulfills its responsibilities and eventually they become the past president which provides advice and leadership to the board of directors regarding past practices and other matters to assist the board in governing the association. It's a three year, one year each it's a three year term. So one year each is the president elect president and immediate past president or uh, past president. Um, that's kind of the definition of the role. And I'll quickly say who's running and then we'll try to talk about them. There's Howard Goldstein, triple CSLP, uh, I'm gonna say the name and then hopefully I say it right, Louis Louis, Louis Rickle Louise Rickleman, Rickleme, May? Rickleme, maybe Rickwellmay. We apologize, Louis. Doctor Rickleme, if we said your name wrong. <laughs> and then A. Lynn uh, Williams, Triple C, uh, SLP.
3: Okay, so for the first one, we have uh, Howard Goldstein. He is running for President-Elect of the ASHA Board of Directors. Uh, Currently, he is an Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders in the College of Behavioral and Community Sciences at the University of South Florida. Uh, He's worked at several universities, uh, and he's had some major contributions to the field. Uh, He was recognized when he became an ASHA Fellow all the way back in 1989. Uh, he earned honors in the association in 2016, served as a mentor, site visitor, trainer, chair. Um, he served as the ASHA vice president for science and research for a few years and served on the board of trustees as well. So he's nationally, a nationally known scholar for research in the field of child language intervention. Uh, his research and training initiatives have focused on improving the communication and social skills of children with autism and other developmental disabilities. Uh, and his recent work sought to enhance the language and literacy development of students in high-poverty schools who are at risk for language and reading disabilities. So he definitely has some, some, some really good experience. Uh, and ASHA asked him, uh, what is your top priority if elected to the ASHA Board of Directors? And he stated that, we need innovative thinking to improve services and prepare professionals to navigate changing realities in our field. Communication is key to ASHA, spearheading initiatives to identify and publicize innovative new ideas, increasing our diversity and global impact, and fostering awareness and support of consumers and policymakers
0: all right um the second candidate we have is um and again we apologize in advance if we are saying his name incorrectly but dr Luis F. may triple c slp Director of the Center for Swallowing and Speech-Language Pathology at New York Presbyterian Brooklyn Methodist Hospital. He's also an Associate Professor of Speech-Language Pathology at New York Medical College. Um, he A lot of his research involves uh, swallowing disorders, but also multiculturalism, cultural competence, and sensitivity. Uh, he has presented all over the place, and most recently, especially since we talked on it, On our last podcast, I believe the IDDSI, which is being implemented, he was on the committee for that, the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative, and he's on the American Board of Swallowing and Swallowing Disorders. He's chaired the New York Board for Speech-Language Pathology. Uh, He was the past chair of ASHA's Multicultural Issues Board. And he also developed the first postgraduate advanced certificate program in pediatric dysphagia for practicing clinicians through New York Medical College. So lots of dysphagia research. And his big focus was that same question that Mike mentioned, the top priority if elected to the ASHA board of directors is representation. So Dr. Raquelme said, Ash's strategic plan outlines a comprehensive approach to achieving our mission and our our vision and mission, but to make a plan meaningful to all members, we must focus on representation. And that includes cultures, ethnicities, lifestyles, belief systems, and preferences. We also must feel represented for what we do. So it seems that he really wants to encourage representation and increase
1: the um,
0: diversity of our clinical expertise and also the clinicians we have.
1: And our third candidate uh, is A. Lynn Williams, Ph.D. Triple C C. C. SLP. Dr. Williams is employed at East Tennessee State University as the associate dean for academic affairs in the College of Clinical and uh, Rehabilitative Health Sciences and professor in the Department of Audiology and Speech-Language Pathology. Uh, she's got a strong interest in the impact of communication disorders, uh, as examined through the International Classification of Function, Functioning Disability and Health and of the World Health uh, Organization. Uh, recently, she has served as the ASHA Vice President for Academic Affairs at, from 2016 to 2018. Uh, she was an ASHA Convention co-chair back in 2014. Uh, she's the editor For the Language, Speech, and Hearing Services in Schools and the American Journal uh, of Speech Language Pathology. Uh, She has a strong track record of uh, more than 175 publications and uh, presentations. Uh, She'll also be inducted into the National Academy of Practice as a Distinguished Fellow in 2019 and was named an Asha Fellow in 2006. Uh, She was inducted into the West Virginia University College of Human Resources and Education Hall of Fame back in 2004 and was an Erskine Fellow at the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, New Zealand uh, in 2011. Her top priority, uh, if she was elected to the board of directors, she says, what do we mean when we say that effective communication is a human right that is accessible and achievable for all? First, our services must be widely accessible and fully integrated into healthcare and educational settings. Second, there must be adequate and appropriate reimbursement for our services. Then, we must work for expanding awareness of the value added by our professions in interprofessional collaborative practice in healthcare and education. Um, we will also have in the show notes uh, below, if you're looking on the XPN network or on Facebook, uh, we will have a link to each one of these uh, bios that we read and go over tonight. Uh, I think it's important that we pick, you pick somebody as your vice or as your president-elect that represents who you feel strongly represents you as a clinician.
0: I'll I'll be completely honest. I didn't know until well into my career that we as members of ASHA were able to vote on this. Yes. And so that's my own naivety, but I'm hoping maybe this this can be informative for a lot of um, people with their C's and ASHA members out there.
3: Yeah, these are three very, very highly qualified people, uh, just reading their bios and all they've done throughout the field. It kind of makes me wonder what I'm doing with myself. <laughs> right. uh, Immediately but... <laughs> as you're reading these, I go,
1: oh, I couldn't do this. I, there's no way I could do this.
3: Yeah, I'm I, I'm really impressed. I think it's great. Uh, and, you know, part of, part of being a a male, just, just from, just from learning, just from reading these three bios, uh, part of being a male in this field, you know, you're always hearing like, Oh, guy, speech therapist, guy, speech therapist. But, you know, with, with the field being so predominantly female, I do kind of feel like, you know, just from reading these three bios that I would say it is kind of important to have a, a female president who kind of represents the vast majority of the field. That's just my gut reaction.
1: Yeah, as we're reading these, when you first talked about Dr. Goldstein, I was like, oh, my gosh, I love what he serves for. And then when uh, Michelle read about Dr. Requelme and the impact he's had on swallowing, I kind of thought that way. And then when I was reading about Dr. Williams and what she means on communication, at least we got three strong candidates. That's At least we have three. <laughs> and we have people um, who've served – in
0: Asha positions before so i know that they're 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 well versed in what this position entails
1: and if you're expecting one of the three of us to say who we're voting for i think we decided in the pre-show that we're not going to do that is that correct
3: I'm going to do a write-in for Lucas okay. Stuber, <laughs> Lucas Stuber.
1: And, and one of the reasons that we're choosing not to tell you who to vote for is that we do feel that all three of these candidates, all nine candidates that we're going to, our 12 candidates we're going to talk about tonight or today are important. And we do feel that they would be qualified for the field. We do not want to persuade or sway any votes one way or the other, because we want to be friends with no matter who wins. Wasn't, wasn't Elizabeth Warren an SLP? She was, and yeah. I emailed her this week to see if she would be on the show, and they said that she wouldn't have time. And I said, well, if she has five minutes for a phone call, we would gladly, gladly take her. I didn't know that. That's, yeah. That's too bad for her. Huh. She could she could have gotten our speech science votes if she would have been on air.
3: She could have heard about Breakfast for Dinner and WrestleMania. And, <laughs> come on.
1: <laughs> Breakfast for Dinner is
0: the best.
3: Sure is. She must not do it.
1: Our second position we're going to be talking about is the, uh, I was going to say the responsibilities, the vice president for academic affairs in audiology. It's a three-year field uh, where they identify issues and forecasting the needs and trends of audiology Uh, incorporating and expanding knowledge and practices of audiology into undergraduate and graduate education, and they serve as the board liaison in consulting with the Council on Academic Accreditation in Audiology and Speech-Language Pathology, the CAA, regarding academic issues in audiology and the relationship to accreditation, implementing the procedures for the appointment of accreditation appeal panels, and review committees for complaints against the CAA. Our three candidates for that position is Radhika. Again, for any of these names, we do apologize for mispronouncing them. Uh, Radhika Mudhan, Triple C Audiologist. Jeffrey D. Giovanni, Triple C Audiology. And I can say that name because he went to OU and I've talked to him. And then Julie A. Hone- Honecker, Triple C Audiologist.
3: Okay, so for the first one here, we have uh, Dr. Radhika Arava-Muthan, Mudhan, is currently an associate professor and serves as the dean for the Osborne College of Audiology at Salus University, which is not far from me. Uh, I've been at Salus quite a lot. It's not far from Philly. Uh, She joined Salus in 2005 after her position as a research assistant at Boys Town National Research Hospital in Nebraska. Uh, she spearheaded several interprofessional initiatives with various faculty at SALIS. Uh, her areas of research interest include understanding and evaluating the electrophysiologic correlates of speech encoding in the auditory system and the role of signal processing on speech perception and perceptual learning. Uh, And she has published papers and has written book chapters in this area of research. Uh, She was asked by Asha what her top priority is. And her top priority will be to explore and implement mechanisms to address key issues in audiology education. And some of the significant challenges they face include variability in competencies across programs and clinical experiences, decreasing number of qualified applicants, and return on investment for students.
0: Our second candidate for this position is Dr. Jeffrey J. Giovanni, PhD, CCC Audiology. I actually know him as well as Matt does uh, since he was working for Ohio University when we both attended there. He is currently a professor and chair of the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders in the College of Allied Health at the University of Cincinnati. Before that, he was at Ohio University, our alma mater, for 15 years in multiple positions. And as the um, CCO, his primary objectives include developing new models of clinical partnerships to secure clinical placements for the 14 clinical programs. Uh, for audiology. His primary research area involves illuminating the research between attentional and working memory mechanisms and auditory performance. There's a lot of overlap there with uh, speech pathology as well. And they describe in his bio that he's been a friend of ASHA for a long time, presenting and being invited to the national conferences and speaking in multiple states. He has authored numerous articles in the ASHA journals and served as an associate editor for the American Journal of Audiology, uh, Audiology Advisory Council for two terms and a representative to the ASHA-sponsored AUD Summit in 2016. Uh, So his top priority if elected to the ASHA Board of Directors, he stated, I have lived and breathed graduate audiology programming. So the AUD was a critical transformation in the field and 20 years later, we've experienced the success and challenges of the AUD program, especially with clinical training. So naturally, it's highly advantageous for academic programs to be ahead of the curve in preparing students for their careers. And his top priority is to reintegrate the discussion among all professional organizations representing audiology in how the, quote, generation 2.0 of the AUD should be composed and implemented.
1: Our third candidate is Julie A. Oniker, Ph.D. Triple C audiologist, uh, is director of the Vestibular and Balance Disorders Program at Cleveland Clinic. Her passion for vestibular sciences developed during her master's program in audiology and the Ph.D. at the University of Cincinnati, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in 2009. Uh, before she was at the Cleveland Clinic, she was an associate professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where her teaching and research program fo- focused on vestibular and balance sciences. Uh, Her signature contributions to the field are enhancing the clinical training and research, preparedness of students in audiology. She has taught more than 100 AUD students in the classroom and the clinic. Uh, she was an active volunteer for ASHA, including being a member of the Academic Affairs Board, the National Advisory Committee for the Audiology Praxis, the Convention Program Committee, and the ASHA Ad Hoc Audi- Audiology Scope of Practice uh, Committee as well. Uh, her top priority, uh, if elected for the Vice President of Academic Affairs and Audiology, is to address the critical issues facing student education. One, promoting research opportunities at the undergraduate and graduate level, two, addressing doctoral level uh, shortages in the field, and three, working closely with the Council of Academic Programs and Communication Sciences and Disorders and ASHA to address discrepancies in our training programs to promote promote improved clinical competencies. So again, those are the VPs for audiology, the Academic Affairs in Audiology, and again, we will have the links up uh, in our uh, show bio and our show notes and of course i would be remiss if i say that we don't want to hear from you and maybe we want to hear your opinion on the election so head over to our website speechsciencepodcast.com, or give us a phone call or a text 614-681-1798 or uh, email speech science podcast at gmail.com and michael what's the hashtag on twitter and instagram
3: that is hashtag ss so
0: hey do it, we have any shout outs didn't someone uh tag us on instagram there mike
3: i think she did um do you guys have it do you guys remember who it was i think it was someone who was uh like
1: making something
3: let me try to find that
1: i do not while you are looking that up i will say that when we did our live episode the talking with speech science uh about the asha aac accreditation uh, the texting into the phone number worked like a dream. And we got over 50 text messages during a uh, 45 minute live session. So Michelle, you found it. I've
0: got it. So nice. um, a shout out to one of our listeners, uh, Username on Instagram is Vedeku, so V-E-D-E-K-U-90. She or he said, tonight I craft, drink beer, and listen to speech science, catching up on an old episode.
1: And they asked, where do we find our articles? Uh, so I have a Google server, I guess. I don't know how you would ask put that, where I look for certain terms and they email them to me. Uh, that's where I get the articles that I pick. Michael and Michelle, where do you get the articles that you find?
3: I find a lot of them from uh, just various like uh, PhD level SLPs. I'm friends with on Facebook. Uh, I'm a part of a, uh, pretty much the, the network of SLPs that I'm always talking about. I feel like I'm always talking about on the podcast uh, are always posting great articles and sharing great things. So I'm I'm really getting it from a lot of the people sharing the most up to date current events.
0: And for me, a lot of the same from social media. I've gotten them from friends and from even uh, parents or patients as well who've shared news articles with me, Uh, recent news and ASHA and other links through research for speech and audiology.
1: And when you are done crafting and drinking beer and listening to old episodes, make sure you go over to iTunes and give us those three, four, five-star ratings. Michelle, that, it's would that it's was an so audio nice of podcast. Michelle, you, no one can see your five fingers for the five stars. I'm what were saying, you saying Mike?
0: I'm just, I'm just doing it over and over, and then hopefully it'll, <laughs> it gets you to say it again too. Five stars. Give us five stars if you like us.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was just saying how how nice it was for her to her to post that picture on her on her own page of her listening to us and 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 uh, giving us a shout out like that. That really, uh, that was very kind of her.
0: That makes well, our day. Thank you.
1: <laughs> we do love the speech science fans. That is kind of why we do this. We do it because we do like hearing ourselves, but we actually like talking to you guys more than we like talking to ourselves. So definitely let us know what you are doing. Uh, the third office that we're talking about tonight is the Vice President for Standards and Ethics and Speech Language Pathology. It is a three-year term. Uh, they will be responsible for identifying issues and forecasting the needs and trends in speech language pathology. They're the board liaison and facilitating the activities of the continuing education board to ensure that established policies on continuing education providers and continuing education activities are maintained. Uh, serving as the board liaison and facilitating the activities of scientific and professional education board to ensure that the established policies and procedures for the planning, coordination, and evaluation of all association-sponsored Continuing education activities and products are maintained. And what I think is more, the most important part, they serve as the ASHA board liaison and facilitating the activities of the board of ethics to formulate and amend as necessary. The code of ethics containing the professional responsibilities by which members and certificate holders shall be bound and facilitating the enforcement and responsibilities of the board of Ethics. Our three candidates is Sharon Moss, Triple C SLP, Ren S. Newman, Triple C SLP, and Sherry Sankabrian. Sankabrian. Again, I apologize for all the names that we have butchered tonight. Triple C uh SLP.
0: And the invitation is out there for any of these people to come on and talk yes. to us and teach us how to say your name
1: correctly. <laughs> That'll be the first question. Tell us how we said your name wrong and then talk about your position. Michael.
3: Okay, so first up, uh, the first candidate for Vice President of Standards and Ethics in Speech, Uh, we have Sharon Moss, CCC SLP, PhD. So she has had a rewarding multifaceted career, high school biology teacher, clinical researcher, and service provider in academic, healthcare, and biomedical research settings, research administrator, and association executive. She received her PhD and master's degree in SLP from the University of Florida and a bachelor's degree from South Carolina State University. Uh, Dr. Moss currently serves as a chief research officer at the American Society of Association Executives, often referred to as the Association of Associations. Uh, She directs the association's research, publication, and knowledge dissemination efforts. Uh, As ASHA staff, Dr. Moss served as the association's research integrity officer, that sounds very important, and led research on ethics in education and publication practices, and she has volunteered for several different positions, and when asked what is your top priority if elected to the ASHA board of directors, uh, she said that it is to integrate, integrate foresight and translational research into the relevant landscape of issues within the purview of this board position. A critical step is considering the application of future-focused research to topics such as innovative service delivery models and content delivery channels, interprofessional collaboration, professional standards and ethics, and the future of academic training. Very impressive, she's come a long way. Not bad. Not a bad candidate.
0: They're all really awesome candidates, right? I no, I like you said, I'm reading these bios just going, wow, that's wow. Okay. <laughs> We've got a lot to learn in our career field.
1: There are times but, where I'm like, oh, I could run for a position. Nope.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I could barely even make the podcast on time. <laughs> all, right.
0: all right. Our uh, second candidate for this position is Dr. Ren S. Newman. SLPD, so that's the clinical doctorate in speech-language pathology. CCC SLP. She is the chair of the speech-language pathology department at Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She teaches seminar and professional issues at the master's level. Level. Prior to that position, she was a clinician at Easter Seals in Florida and named Director of the Speech-Language Pathology Department. And during that time, she supervised clinical fellows and really developed her interest in the supervisory process. And she has extensive history in the service of ASHA. She served on the Council for Clinical Certification, uh, was the editor of what was then the SIG-11 newsletter, which is Administration, administration and Supervision, uh, SIG-11, coordinator for SIG-11 in 2005, She's been a member of the ASHA Academic Affairs Board, Board of Ethics, the Ad Hoc Committee Committee on Guidelines for the Clinical Doctorate in Speech-Language Pathology, Ad Hoc Committee on Governance Review. So a lot of experience on committees within ASHA itself. And she has recently authored a chapter on ethics in a clinical education book, Supervisory Process in Speech-Language Pathology and Audiology. When asked what her top priority if elected to the ASHA Board of Directors would be, uh, she described it as, if elected as Vice President of Standards and Ethics, I recognize all the areas falling under this position are important. I believe the area of ethics becomes a top priority at this point in time with the numbers of speech pathologists and audiologists growing concerns relative to ethical behavior will likely increase in number and significance. The requirement of one hour of continuing ed in ethics for certification maintenance is a step forward. But consideration of additional ways to promote the importance of ethical and legal behavior is of particular importance as areas of practice such as patient client privacy changes in healthcare increased utilization of social media become more complex.
1: Our third care our candidate is Sherry. Sankabrian, triple C SLP. She's an ASHA fellow and a board certified specialist in child language and language disorders. She was the 2008 convention co-chair for ASHA and has chaired a variety of convention topic committees and has participated numerous times as a convention committee member. Uh, She also served as a member of the scientific and professional education board, legislative council, strategic leadership team, and coordinating committee for the vice president for speech language pathology practice, She's also a former president of the Texas Speech Language Hearing Association, the Speech, Texas Speech Language Hearing Foundation, and the National Council of State Boards of Examiners in Speech Language Pathology and Audi- Audiology. Uh, She served on the board for the Council of State Association Presidents and has served as a member and chair of the American Board of Child Language and Language Disorders. Uh, She's a frequent presenter for continuing education events on a variety of topics, including but not limited to ethics, autism spectrum disorder, parent professional relationships school based services executive functioning and language therapy uh, she's also authored Asha webinar on treatment of speech sound disorders and was the subject matter expert for speech sound disorders portion of the Asha practice uh, portal Uh, Her top priority, if elected, is to ensure that ASHA continues to offer members a career-long learning path. That path should support novice practitioners trying to solidify core knowledge and skills and more experienced providers who choose to pursue specialty certification as a way of validating their expertise in a particular area of the practice. If the CCC is to remain the gold standard for speech-language pathology services, ASHA must provide members the tools to engage in continuous self-evaluation, deliver culturally competent services that improve functional outcomes, supervise others in an ethical manner, contribute effectively to interprofessional teams, embrace and implement emerging technologies, demonstrate their value in rapid changing education and healthcare environments, and improve their knowledge and practice over the course of a career. So those would be the three candidates for vice president for standards and ethics in speech language pathology,
3: very qualified candidates. I'm very, mm-hmm. imp- I'm very impressed. We, we have, uh, we, there's definitely a lot of, you know, for for those of us that are in one school all day or one sniff all day, uh, it's easy to kind of lose track of how many incredible SLPs there are out there. But you know, besides not saying the, the ones that we work with aren't amazing, but. There's, eh. there's there's some there's some incredible, incredible high achievers out there. And and these ones running for board, you know, they're they're running for it for a reason. They've done some they've clearly done a heck of a lot in their careers.
1: And again, it takes about three minutes to vote and the elections open up on April 16th. And every week that we do an episode, we will at least make a mention of it and put a link uh, down in our show notes, because I, I don't know about you guys, but I do feel it's important that. If we complain or comment or critique something Asha does, then it is our responsibility as members to, to vote for somebody. Because if we don't vote and we just critique, nothing actually ever gets done.
3: Vote or die.
1: Well, <laughs> not sure it's that serious, but it's old school. When we come back from break, we will be playing the interviews for our vice president for planning. You're listening to speech science.
3: This podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the company behind the self GFTA and the brand new PPVT five and EVT three. These new easy to use vocabulary assessments are brief and reliable for two years six months old to those 90 and beyond learn more about these new tests at pearsonclinical.com slash exceptional that's pearsonclinical.com slash x c e p t i o n a l
1: welcome back to speech science episode 73 the election i'm sorry the asha elections special. I'm the speech language pathologist who has a hard time communicating. I'm Matt hot joined as always by Michelle wintering. Hi again, Matt. Hi, Michelle and Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? Those dulcet tones out of a fixed microphone sound wonderful, Mike. It sure does. I feel good. It does. I'm enjoying it. Michelle, you had good news for us during the break.
0: Yeah, I was checking out our ratings and reviews on the podcast, Apple podcasts. And just wanted to give a little shout out to Alyssa who rated us last week with a five-star review and commented, commented that she loves the podcast and the host.
1: Oh, we love you too. Thank you, Alyssa. I will say this, this is pretty cool. And, and maybe it is tooting our own horn a little bit, but we have been in the Asha or I'm not the Asha. Wow. My brain is already there. The iTunes top podcast. Uh, for education for the last seven weeks, I believe, and educational tech since almost December. So that is all you, the listeners, uh, keeping with us, and we love you guys for it. So make sure you rate and review us because that helps us out a little bit as well because it is cheap to do the show, but it does cost a little bit of money, so it does help find advertisers. That's all.
0: I just have to say that. And thanks for listening and the more you interact the more fun it is for us and for that,
1: you so <laughs> that's a hundred percent true uh michelle and i had a wonderful time interviewing the candidates for the vp for planning um the vp for planning position it's a three-year term it's facilitating the process of strategic or forward planning for the association uh, they facilitate the infusion of multicultural issues and populations in ash's program planning They provide an annual progress report to the Board of Directors, and they serve as the board liaison in facilitating the activities of the Multicultural Issues Board, which is charged with reviewing, monitoring, and recommending association policies and actions on diverse populations as they pertain to students, professionals, and consumers. The three candidates for VP of Planning are Craig Coleman, Kathy Sofel, and Yvette Heider. Um, And instead of us reading about them, they will tell you about themselves. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hott. I am excited to be joined today uh, by Craig Coleman. He's an ASHA fellow, board certified specialist in stuttering and the associate professor at Marshall University. And coming back on the show the second time, uh, this time running for another ASHA position, correct?
4: Yeah, this time I'm running for uh, vice president of planning
1: why? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Good question. Um, so, you know, one of the things that really interests me about the vice president of planning position is that it's really the the board position that uh, oversees the strategic plan and, um, and also works a lot with uh, building international relations. And those are two areas that I have a real strong interest in, especially the strategic plan aspect of it, because you know, I think identifying the issues and, and trying to work on solving some of them that, that face the profession over the next uh, five to seven years is, is really kind of an exciting thing to, to look at. And, uh, and also, I, I really am enjoying um, over the last month or so of kind of, you know, discussing issues with ASHA members and kind of getting a feel for what everybody is experiencing in terms of, of their needs and uh, what issues we're facing. And so I think it's an important position.
1: What do you see, um, we're gonna get more into the elections in just a moment, but what do yeah. you see as the number one issue currently for, for both speech paths and then maybe audiologists as well?
4: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of different issues you can point to, but to me, a lot of them come back to the same thing, which is a lot of people still just don't know what we do. And uh, our scope of practice is so large, and I think that's a good thing sometimes, but the bad thing is that, uh, number one, people can hop on board and, and encroach in different places around the edges, and, and we may not pick up on that as quickly because the scope of practice is so big, um, and I think the, the other thing is that it, it the the public and the consumers have a very difficult time sometimes understanding exactly what it is we do. And that leads to difficulty with reimbursement. It leads to encroachment issues. It leads to, um, you know, let's be honest, salaries maybe not being what they should be um, and and things like that. So I, I think there's a lot of issues we could talk about. I think a lot of them come back to that same thing though, is that we are not very good at promoting ourselves.
1: I read an interesting. I'm on a lot of Facebook pages for speech therapy, probably more than I should. I probably should get rid of a lot of them and just use speech or use Facebook to look at photos of my friends. But <laughs> one of the posts I noticed, it said that with speech paths, we're in demand, yeah. yet our salaries don't match that demand. How can Asha help with that? And then is that because sometimes for me, I feel like that's a us issue on the front line versus a national issue. And some people say, no, that's a national issue. How does ASHA factor into something like that?
4: Well, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with how, how do you go about solving supply and demand issues and, and addressing them? I mean, you know, because you're right, we've been in demand for a number of years and there, you know, you've heard about shortages, but certainly the the salaries have not increased the way a profession should when they're in such demand. And I I think part of that is, you know, we are always kind of playing around with using support personnel and how we're gonna go about using support personnel. And, you know, we're trying to solve issues that way. And we're talking about, um, you know, not having enough people in one sense, but then we continue to expand the scope of practice in the next sense. And you know, I, I think we have a bit of a of a problem in that we, we, we've gotten so large right now as as professions in audiology and speech language pathology. I think ASHA has something somewhere close to two hundred thousand members now, and that's almost doubled since I got into the the professions, and that was nineteen years ago in in two thousand. So I mean, that's a very short time to increase that much, and. um So, you know, I I think part of the issue is going back and looking at, are we, is historically the model we've had for training, um, promotion of the field, um, meeting supply and demand issues, is that working for us still with with the numbers that we have now? And, you know, what can we look at in in terms of our role moving forward? And, And, you know, there's been a lot of talk lately about this issue of working at the top of your license, right? And so, you know, that, that term basically means that you're not doing the things that, you know, maybe somebody who, who is a support personnel or an SLP assistant can do, but you're doing things that only a licensed and certified professional can do. Now, I think that's, that all that discussion is really good, but I also think that, that if we're going to promote that, which I hear ASHA promoting a lot, I think we have to specify for the public what that means. Cause there's a lot of people in our profession who don't know what that means and, and <laughs> rightfully so. Um, so I, I think like when, when you're going to promote that to employers, for example, or, you know, to, to the public and you say, well, we're going to work at the top of our license. You, you're going to get a lot of quizzical looks of, of what exactly that means. And so I think working at the top of the license is good, but I also think there needs to be discussion on, when you're working at the top of the license, that means you should be getting improved reimbursement. That means you should be getting improved salary. That means you should be getting improved working conditions because you are working at the top of your license.
1: You're a board certified specialist in stuttering. Uh, right. I just saw, I believe it's Sig, SIG 12, that they're looking at the introduction of the board certified uh, AAC specialist or specialist in AAC. Um, we're actually going to be doing a live show on March 31st, uh, co-sponsored with Talking with Tech, uh, talking to Chris Bagaji and Rachel uh, Madel about that. There's a lot of opinions about is that good or is that bad? Yeah. In our field, should we be looking at more of those board-certified specialists or do we look at moving the SLP from the master's to the, to the PhD?
4: You know, it's a really interesting question. I, I think it's a, it's going to be a really difficult transition in speech-language pathology to move from a master's requirement to a clinical doctorate, and um, like audiology did, because our work settings are so different. You know, in, in speech-language pathology, you have about 55% of SLPs that work in the public schools. And that's a tough sell to get departments of education to say that, they're going to be on board with requiring a clinical doctorate because it's, it's tough to get a lot of them to stay on board with requiring a master's degree. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't see that move um, happening anytime soon to be quite honest. And, And I think that we have to look instead about how we can be creative with that. And I think the board certification is a way to do that. Um, you know now i do think we have to be a little bit more mindful with the board certification of of what it means and again helping the consumer and the public see what it what it is it you know because somebody can call themselves for example a stuttering specialist without being board certified and, you know, that, that's a problem. I mean, you know, so if, if you're going to create these things, you have to put some teeth behind it, number one. And number two, you have to have public awareness campaigns that promote the, the certification. Because, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. In Stuttering, when they first started this program in Stuttering, I think it was, it was right when I was coming into the field. I think it was in the year 2000, 2001. They grandfathered 300 specialists in just so they could be the mentors. Um, 19 years later, we currently have 156 board certified stuttering specialists. So the numbers have decreased significantly because the number of people going out has far exceeded the number of people coming in.
1: Now, do you think I'm not board certified in anything yet? I'm looking at a couple areas that I would like to pursue more just for personal growth. Sure. do, Do you feel that it looks at? Or it creates more of a opportunity or a blockage? Because I look at it as, for me, if I want to prove that I'm really good working with dysphagia in home care, I mm-hmm. need to really look at that board certified in, in dysphagia. Right. But, you know, the part of me also feels like, is that a block that if, am I going to get held back from a job because I don't have that? That Am I making myself clear or am I?
4: So are you I? asking like if you <laughs> – don't if you don't get it will that prevent you from getting certain jobs yes
1: and is that what's going to happen with AAC have you seen that with stuttering or or not
4: no and I think the reason why but but I'm not sure that applies to every area because um you have so few people who are interested in stuttering and I I don't know why that is because I feel like everybody should be interested in it But um, there's not a ton of people of SLPs who are interested in specializing in stuttering, but um, I haven't seen it be a block. uh, I'll tell you where I feel like it could be really helpful. Uh, Number one is if you go into private practice, obviously, because you can use it as a way to promote your practice. And people feel better about seeing someone who has a specialist certification than somebody who doesn't. Um, So you get a lot of referrals that way. Um, Number two, I do think if you ever see yourself wanting to teach at a university, that's another mechanism for you to be able to do it because I think a lot of people might look at that if you're looking to teach a certain class as a little bit higher even than than a clinical doctorate that's more, uh, maybe a little bit more generalized than a a board specialist area where you can justify hey, I should be teaching this class in this one area because I'm board certified in that area.
1: That makes sense. So one of the issues with that I saw Asha is working on, and it affects one of our co-hosts, Michelle uh, Wintering. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's worked in Denver. I always goof it up. I think it was Texas. It might have been New Mexico or Arizona. She yells at me every time. Currently, she's in Kentucky. They're looking at that interstate licensure. Mm Mm-hmm. What is the long term plan for that? Is there something that will look at a 50 state licensure, or is it really going to be more of these small cluster of states near each other or still well, in the yeah. air?
4: <laughs> I think that I think it's still up in the air. I think Ash's vision from what I know is um, trying to create a national license eventually. And um, I, I do think honestly that's the way to go and, and really what we need to advocate for. Um, because number one it would create a mechanism where the certification means a lot more than it does right now, um, you know. Because let's be honest, certification is great. The licensure gives you a lot more power in in terms of law. True. And um, you, you know, I think part of the issue that we have a lot of times with a lot of these encroachment issues comes back to the fact that depending on how a state law is written or interpreted or what the politics look like at the state level um, that gets very heavily influenced in licensure law. And somebody shouldn't be able to do, you know, an ABA therapist shouldn't be able to do speech therapy in one state, just because the law is weak in that state, that should be a national standard that, that ABA therapists should not be able to do speech and language therapy. And you know I, I think that, that that's another reason why we need it, and I think I think teletherapy is is really a push for that too. You know, right now, if you're doing teletherapy, you have to be licensed in the state that you sit in and the state the patient sits in. And let's be honest if we're if we're saying that we want to improve our access to professionals and improve access to to specialists in particular, that's still pretty restrictive.
1: I mean, I live here in Cincinnati. I am 45 minutes from the Indiana border. I am 35 wow. minutes from the Kentucky border. And I cannot look at jobs in either of those states because I, I mean, I could. I, I just have to go through the licensure process. Right. But I, I, I have, I, we were talking off air. I have a five year old. I have a two year old. I coach high school bowling. I do home care. I don't have time to go through the rigmarole of, of applying for another out-of-state licensure just to apply for a job.
4: Well, you know, it, yeah, I, I, it, it's true. I mean, like, you know, Marshall University, we sit like pretty much five minutes from the Ohio border and five minutes from the Kentucky border yeah. in West Virginia. Um, so, I mean, it's the same kind of situation. I mean, you know, you, you can go out and we can try to get contracts with some of these other places, but the, the licensure becomes a little bit restrictive to do that, number one. And I do some teletherapy, and I'll tell you some of the the hoops that you have to jump through for some of the states is ridiculous. I mean, I, I won't say which state it is, but I, I looked at it, one state about five years ago because I had a kid who was interested in seeing me in teletherapy, and the parents contacted me, and you know, you had to go through. I had to go through this online infection control training and HIV, <laughs> and, and all very difficult to spread over the internet, right? Right. Um, and so you know, it, it was like, nah, I don't, I'm not really into spending you know 12 hours and doing this stuff to, to work with uh, you know one kid, and uh, you know you feel bad about that, but there there needs to be a little bit more of a common sense approach there.
1: You had mentioned when we first start when we first started talking about perfecting or or improving Asha's image with the SLPs, yeah. and I know you should never read the comments, but reading the comments of a Facebook page there's people that love Asha that will carry the flag until the day they retire. Right. And there are people that will fight Asha <laughs> over the simplest ideas. Right. Um, I remember the, the viral marketing video about re- remind or redoing your renewing your dues. Yeah. And, and was, you at the
4: national office.
1: Yeah. And everyone, some people were like, this is great. Thank you for the reminder. And some people said, Oh, this is the biggest waste of my dues. Why do I pay? Right. How do you see yourself reaching both the people that will carry the flag for you, no matter what, right? But also looping in those people that maybe don't see the value of the Asha C's, that don't see the value of of paying that. And I guess I should say full disclosure as I just asked that question: Asha tapped me for the Power of the C's ad campaign or something. So mm-hmm. if you Google my name, that is up there. But it's a legit question: How do you loop both the people that will carry the flag and the people that'll shoot the flag bearer.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I think part of the thing is you have to get to why people feel the way they do. And, um, you know, I I read the comments as well. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times if you're if you've had experience working on committees or things like that within ASHA, you really see how much ASHA does for the profession and for us as speech language pathologists and audiologists. However, I'm not sure that's always communicated in the best way. And, you know, I I think they've gotten better about that. Um, But I I don't know that people know where to see that at all the time, um, unless you're you're plugged in. And, you know, so I I really feel strongly that, you know, part of my mission if I win this election is, To improve the communication with the membership and I think this is the perfect position to do that with because it involves planning and anything that involves planning you have to know what issues people are facing and you know what issues the members feel are important and so I would really try to do something where you know once a month for example we have Facebook chats or we we, we go to different social media platforms and you know I can talk about what's going on and people can ask questions about you know, what, what issues they're facing and, and discuss those. Because I think you, you have to create a mechanism where people feel connected. And, you know, it, this goes back to the problem with the election, Matt, to be honest. And the election problem is that people don't vote. I, I mean, you, you look at the percentage of ASHA members who actually vote in the elections, it's something like three, 3%. And, that's an incredibly low number because I think people feel disconnected and we have to work on getting better at that.
1: And I'll be honest, I actually forgot the elections were coming up until I got the, until we started talking about who we wanted to interview as, as candidates. And I'm plugged in. I'm an ASHA seal. I'm plugged in. I'm doing the show, trying to come up with topics. And even then I was like, Oh, it opens up in about, uh, we're recording this on the 20th. This will go live next week. Uh, I believe elections open up the first week of March.
4: Um,
1: I think. Oh, sorry, April. Yeah, April.
4: <laughs> I think it's the first week of April. But, but yeah, it's first week of April. But, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like, you know, you, you get a lot of reminders. And, and that's something that I don't think is Ash's fault because they send a ton of reminders during the election process. So I don't think it's an issue with people not knowing the elections are going on. I think it's people don't care. Fair. and. They, they don't feel connected to the candidates. And that's, that's one of the things like, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to do now as a candidate by trying to get on as many of these as possible and, and do my own things to, to kind of get, get to people and pull them in and, and uh, find out what issues are important to people and, and talk about those um, to, to let people know where I stand as a candidate. And, and, but I think that's something that if I'm elected, that I really will try hard to do is is to, improve that line of communication. So people do care and they feel like they're
1: invested. I've got one more candidate question for you. Then I do want to get more, get to know you questions. Okay. You work in, you're an associate professor professor at Marshall University. Correct. How do you think that either helps you or gives you an advantage to know what, for example, I'm doing in home care or when I'm working in the school system, do you think that gives you an advantage because you're working with the kids or I'm sorry, kids, young adults uh, before they move out there? Or, or do you feel like that's a, a little bit of a hurdle?
4: I think it can be both. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the reasons why I, I am trying to reach out to so many people is I need to know what the issues are in the trenches that I don't know about. And, you know, that, that's a really important thing, I think, as a candidate to, to learn about. You can't go into something thinking that you know everything. Um, you know, I'll be the first one to tell you, my my clinical background was at a pediatric hospital. I worked at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh before I, I took my position at Marshall seven years ago, and so I'm very familiar with issues related to pediatric outpatient care, to hospital settings, to you know those things. But I'm really trying to work hard to find, for example, what issues people in um, nursing homes are facing, or what what issues people in schools are facing, because I don't know that and. I can think I do, but I think it's better to hear that from people who are directly in those settings.
1: Well, I can tell you that here in the state of Ohio, we have a case, or cap number of 80, and I started the year off with 115 students.
4: So what happens if you have <laughs> 115 and you have a cap of 80?
1: Um, so uh, I also sit as, a, as the OSLA schools rep, the Ohio Speech and Language Hearing Association schools rep. Uh-huh. So I have to word this very delicately. But if I were to go to the state, ODE, Ohio Department of Education, uh-huh. and I report who it is, they'll say very nicely, what's your name? What school district do you work in? They'll then call the superintendent of that school and say, hey, Matt Hott from your school called and said, You've, he's got 115 students. He's only supposed to have 80. Why is there a difference? Superintendent says, oh, we couldn't hire enough people. We didn't have a good candidate. We had more people moved in, something. Right. ODE says, here's your waiver. Sign it. Don't let this happen again next year. And then I get a phone call from the superintendent saying, right. hey, why didn't you come to us first? Right. Um, luckily, I can say in my school district, I went to my super uh, supervisor, special ed supervisor, and said, Hey, I've got 115 kids. Yeah. I need help. And instantly they got me down to about 75 to start the year off. But that's the process in Ohio. There's no we feel there's no teeth in Ohio. Yeah.
4: So let me ask you a question then. Yeah. Not to turn the interview tables here. <laughs> what what do you feel like in this situation? Cause this is a really good example of like as a candidate, something you need to know about. What do you think in this situation Asha could do? to help make this issue easier? Because I'm sure you're not the only state that experiences this.
1: I know from, so I, I, I guess I have more insider information than the, the typical school-based SLP uh-huh. because I know that we can call ASHA and they'll come with us to our uh, GAC or government action committee activity right. and, and right. come with us to the state. But I think a lot of people don't know that that's even an option that they don't know, that they can get someone on the phone with ASHA. I mean, if I know I was just a regular school SLP that wasn't tuned in, I would say that I want to know, is is ASHA going to call my senator for me? Will they write a letter in support of what we're trying to do at the State Association? Will they show up if we invite them to the GAC? Right. I mean, that's what I would would ask, and I kind of know some of those answers um but i think that's what the the basic slp would be asking
4: so that's a really good point and i think that gets back to what we were talking about before is that you know i think a lot of people in that situation would say what is asha doing to help us and i'm not getting my money out of my dues mm-hmm. but it's not that they're not doing anything it's that they're not good about telling you what they're doing or what what services are available to you because i think you're right i think most people in the schools would not know that that's po- a possibility
1: yeah. And, and that's and so, why I felt bad answering that. I'm like, oh, I, I kind of know the answer. <laughs> well, no, I think, I think that's good because I think it,
4: it shows that, like, you know, one of the things that if we're talking about planning, right, one of the things that, that we have to do better of is, is we have to do a better job of providing resources to people to let them know what it is we can help them with and, and getting that out there consistently in formats that people see. And, and let's be honest right now. I mean, we're in an age right now where more people probably read posts on social media than they do the ASHA leader. Agreed. And, and so, you know, w- that's the mechanism that we have to communicate with people on if, if that's the way, way people are understanding things. I mean, you know, if, if you look at, at how to get that message across, it's to, to get people where they're reading things
1: at. I was gonna say, I get the ASHA leader every time it comes to my house. I look at it quickly flip through to see if there's an article that's of any interest if there is i may take the 10 minutes to read that article and then i move on my day but if i'm trying to help my kids get to sleep or you know they're asleep and i'm just kind of sitting in the room i might pull out my phone and scroll through and then you know i'm seeing something from every organization i'm not seeing the asha leader being posted
4: You know, one of the really cool things I think for Asha to look at doing would be—I don't know if you've ever used it before—but like at the convention, for example, they have that app. Yes. And if if there was a a way to move that app over to being like a full-time app, where you know, you you could be sitting at your doctor's office in a waiting room and say, Hey, I really want to look up stuff on caseload right now. Let me type that into the app and it pulls up, you know, all of the resources that are available. Now certainly you can do that on the internet, but I think if it's an app, I think you feel like you're more connected to it. And I think you feel like you have a way of communicating with the app sometimes
1: versus a website. Agreed. I, you got my vote now. (laughs) Um I, I know I said I only had one other question, but I just thought of this. You have complete control of ASHA. Somehow you take over all of ASHA. What's <laughs> one thing that you you wish you could make an immediate change on?
4: Uh, that's a tough question. Um, I, I, again, I go back to my, I think we got to do do a better job of of promoting ourselves and and talking about what we do you know one of the interesting things i think is that asha does a really good job of telling stories of famous people who have communication disorders okay so gabby giffords was a good good Mm -hmm. one Um, you know there's 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 a a bunch of different examples out there Um, but really really good always at that kind of thing but we don't do a very good job a lot of the time at telling the story of the average person who has a communication disorder. Sometimes the famous people card doesn't play as well with the general population though, because let's be honest, I mean, taking nothing away from Gabby Giffords or anybody else who is famous, they have resources that the everyday person doesn't have. True. And, and so, you know, like, if, if I'm watching something or I'm seeing an article written about, like, how this famous person worked with a speech pathologist, I'm probably more interested in the famous person than I am the speech pathologist. But, but if it's like, hey, this is the normal third grader who we see with a language disorder in the schools, and what an impact we've made on their life to the point where now they are, you know, functioning as a middle schooler or high schooler and able to make friends and communicate, that's the story that needs to be told. And it needs to be told to the public repeatedly in different ways to be able to, to highlight what we do, because there's such opportunity there. How many people go through their entire life where either themselves or a member of their family doesn't have a speech, language, feeding, swallowing, Ooh. or hearing disorder in some capacity?
1: I read, uh, I heard an interesting stat the other day that only 3% of People who need a communication device have a communication device. Now
4: that's that's crazy. That's a crazy <laughs> statistic.
1: But yeah, no, just kind of like what you're saying. Like I'm even thinking of the ASHAcertified.org, which is all about the power of the C's and the SLPs on there. Like I didn't even know that was a thing until they asked me to do it. And that's so,
4: so who's that going could, to it, right? Who's going to that website? Exactly.
1: That's the one that should be put on Facebook every day, along with this. I love your idea—the story of the candidates, or not yeah. candidates, of our our patients. Yeah, crime. that's a wonderful idea. Like, because there's that Johnson and Johnson commercial where they show the nurse that gave the kid a communication device. That should be us. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and the really thing
4: interesting thing about that is, you know. I think a lot of that, it gets to recruitment to some degree too. Like it gets to, you know, improving the professions, it gets to reimbursement issues. It also gets to making sure that you're getting good people who want to be speech language pathologists and talented people because people see that and they say, that's what I want to do. I want to go help somebody to be able to do that. And, and, you know, if we're talking about long-term solving shortages and things like that, we have to start looking at ways to do that where we're bringing in good people consistently.
1: So Craig, let's get to know you for a moment. Let's meet the candidate. Who sure. are you? What, <laughs> what kind of family do you have? Why did you become an SLP? Let's start with those big three ones.
4: Okay. So uh, let, let's start with the, the big, the SLP one cause I guess we'll work backwards from there since <laughs> that, that happened first before the family and everything else. <laughs> um. So, it, very, really interesting for me. I went to the University of Pittsburgh um, for bachelor's degree and master's degree. I'm from Pittsburgh originally, um, and I started off in pre-med, and um, then I ran into organic chemistry, and I said, I don't really like this that much. <laughs> and and so, um, you know, I just started looking at some other health-related professions and and kind of getting a feel for what I wanted to do and. Um, I took a couple classes in speech pathology late in my sophomore year, I think, and um, the rest was kind of history after that. I mean, I just got more and more into it and and really enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the coursework. I I enjoyed, um, I I really, as I got to do clinic things, like whether that was observing as an undergrad or doing clinic work as a grad student, I mean, that that was really a a catch for me. I mean, that was sort of like, yeah, this is what I'm meant to do. and then, you know, I, I started working at Children's Hospital right after I graduated and, and I kind of wasn't that interested in stuttering when I first started <laughs> and um, kind of got thrown into that a little bit. And um, again, it just sort of happened where I got more and more into it. And, um, you know, I, I kind of went on from there. It, 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 I, I really enjoy working with people who stutter because of the counseling component that's involved. It's not just sitting down and doing some drill work here and there. Um, you know, there's everybody has a story to tell and everybody's story is very different. Um, so it, it really kind of interested me to get more and more involved in it and I uh, really enjoyed the counseling aspect and I, I feel like I learned a lot and this can bridge the gap. Um, I, I feel like I learned a lot as a, um, as a person in working with people who stutter and learned a lot of good lessons really early on in my young career about um, how it's really important to, to be who you are and, and not really care so much what other people think because, you know, I, I, here I am working with all these people and a lot of them are trying to do whatever they can do not to stutter. But, right. but there are people who stutter. And so a lot of what we were working on was, you know, okay, yes, we can learn strategies and techniques, but part of it is this is who you are and you have to be okay with that. And and so I think that that really helped to shape me as a as a professional and as a as a person, and I also think it helped me to be a, a strong advocate for people. Um, so you know, I, I I kind of professionally got going for a few years, and um, then I had a, an opportunity to run for uh, Asha Legislative Council back when there was such a thing as, <laughs> as
1: Asha Legislative Council.
4: Um, so I was um, I don't know only four years out of school I think when, when I did that and I I looked at the list of candidates that year and I said there's no way I'm going to win this election uh, <laughs> in, in Pennsylvania and then uh, I ended up winning um, and I think largely that was because I personally sent an email to every person in Pennsylvania who was an ASHA member and kind of <laughs> explained why I wanted to run and you know what I hope to do in the position and bring better communication to the members of Pennsylvania on what Asha was doing. Um so I I, I won and I made it a point to, to do that. And then um right around that time I also had uh an opportunity right at the end of that that term, I guess this would have been two thousand six, two thousand seven, uh the legislative council was kind of uh sunsetting because uh there was a change in, in the way the system was being set up to move toward the advisory councils at that point and to sunset the uh, legislative council. And so you know, for me, it was sort of like, do you wanna run for this again? Um, and, and I had really become in that three years connected with people in Pennsylvania because I, I really had made it sort of my mission to communicate with them. And so if somebody approached me and said, you know, look, a, a lot of stuff is happening at the state level in Pennsylvania. Um, and it was actually Shari Robertson who is currently the ASHA president mm-hmm. right now. Um, she had been the president of the Pennsylvania speech language hearing association at the time. And she's, uh, you know, a lot of important stuff is happening in Pennsylvania right now. And we're going through this process where we're going to begin to uh, redo the licensure law. And, you know, we really feel like it would be a a good idea for you to run for president. And I said, you know, I I think I've done what I set out to do in the three years that that I wanted to be on the legislative council. My term was ending, and so I I agreed to do that. And then a week later, I found out that my oldest son was going to be born. I thought, what have I gotten myself into here? (laughs) Um, but it, but it, the timing worked out really well, um, so yeah, that kind of plays into the, the personal aspect. I have a 12 a year old and a, a, a one who will be 10 in May, um, and um, so I, I went through my term as president the first time we, we, in Pennsylvania. We we accomplished a lot in moving the bill forward to do the licensure rewrite, but we weren't quite there yet, um, and so. Um, My term had ended and I, you know, I had kind of gone to do some other things and, and for about a year. And then I got a call again saying, you know, we really need you to come back for a second term because we're, we're, we're close now to getting this done, but we need, we need somebody with experience. So um, I agreed to come back for a second term and um, eventually we, we got the bill passed um, and and got it done. Um, And then right as I was, Kind of in the middle of my second term, I had the opportunity to go to Marshall. Um, so I, I actually finished my second term as president of Pennsylvania while I was working in at Marshall in oh, West. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> so I went back and forth a lot uh, in, in that year and a half period of still being on the PA board and, and doing that. And um, but but it worked out really well. And I, and you know I I think I've I've tried. As I've gone through this process, I've really even tried to, to with my, my sons who are old enough now to kind of recognize what's going on, you know, to, to kind of um, involve them in this process a little bit to some degree and, and say, you know, hey, I'm running for this position now. Um, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, they, they kind of think I'm running for vice president of the country. So they kind of think <laughs> it's a big deal. uh um, but, but uh, for example, our, our teachers were on strike in, in West Virginia last year and then this just happened again with another issue over the last week here. And so I, I told them uh, yesterday when they were off school for the first day, I said, okay, you're gonna, you guys are going to be off school, I said, but you're going to write an essay on why education is important and why wow. it's important to support the teachers. Um, so, so they've, they've kind of gone through this process with me a little bit. And I think we'll do that over the next couple of months and learn learned a little bit about the political system and, and things like that. Um, in my free time, I, I coach a lot of sports with them, um, mainly baseball.
1: I was gonna say, I was just creeping on your Facebook page and saw there was a league championship or something.
4: Uh, yeah, but, you know, I've been really lucky with them. Be- between both of them, they've actually won four district championships wow. um, that, I've, that I've coached them with. Um, my older son's won two and my younger son's won two. And um, last year, they both made it to within uh, one game of winning a state title.
1: Oh, my gosh.
4: So um, they'll have, I think, some excitement this year to look forward to. And um, it'll be it'll be a fun experience again.
1: I give you credit. I had to coach my son's t-ball team this year and I coach high school bowling. So yeah. like, I like bowling. I like coaching, but I, I coach high school bowling and I had to coach t-ball this year. And I was just like, Oh, Oh no. What did I get myself into?
4: <laughs> t-ball is kind of a different animal than anything else. Cause I, I, I went through t-ball with both of my sons and you just hope somebody doesn't get hurt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember with my, my second son, because I had gone through it with my older one, and, and my second son was playing his first practice of doing T-ball. And I had a guy helping me who I didn't think had much experience at the time. And, and he said something like, hey, should we teach him how to turn a double play? <laughs> and I said, you know what? I said, if they don't pick the weeds, I'll be happy. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> Stop eating the dirt. Look yeah, if they the
4: dirt, end up in the hospital, <sighs> we're good. Forget the double play. <laughs>
1: So I I also see that you're a Steelers fan. Yeah, although that
4: pains me a little bit right now.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, if you are in charge of Asha and the Steelers, what do you do with Antonio Brown?
4: I trade him for a first round pick (laughs) if I can.
1: (laughs) Now, do you find being a professor down at Marshall, is it, I've never been to Marshall. I went to school in Appalachia uh Ohio, Muskingum. Yeah. I went to Ohio University. I grew up in Cincinnati. Okay. There is a difference between being considered city versus right. being rural. Right. Do you, and my wife actually grew up just south of Pittsburgh out in uh, Houston, PA, which is near Washington, PA. Yeah, sure. I know where that's at. Do you see is it, is, there any, is it difficult coming from like the city to, to connect with students in the rural area? Or is it, you know, now that everyone's on Facebook, does it even matter?
4: That's a good question. Um,
1: you know, I, I think
4: that it, there's, there's some unique challenges about it and you have to be, I think the challenges are not so much challenges, but you just, there's more things that you have to be aware of. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just, you know, personal experiences at times. Um, and, you know, sometimes for me, I have to remember, see, I, I went to, my experience in high school and was, I, I went to a, a very large school in Pittsburgh that was very diverse, um, because we we had um, about nine school districts that merged into one when I was in middle school. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, you had, I mean, the, the spectrum in every socioeconomic way. Um, so it, it was a very diverse experience. And sometimes for me, I have to just check myself to remind myself that sometimes people coming from certain areas don't have that experience to pull back on. And that's something that we have to work on at at the college level is, is ensuring they get that because they're gonna go work with people who have diversity.
1: Well, Craig, we have kept you for almost 40 minutes. This is an awesome interview but I do want to wrap it up, unfortunately. Sure, sure, yeah. What did we not touch on that you want to get out there to everyone that's on the fence, either about voting or or who to vote for?
4: You know, uh, number one, let me just say- In the I,
1: I, ASHA elections.
4: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I have to keep it to that uh, perspective, right? Um, number one I'll just say you know like obviously I would love if everybody voted for me but whether or not you vote for me or not I would just encourage everybody to take the time to get to know the candidates and to to vote Um, you know because there are similarities I think between people but I also think there are some differences in, in how everybody would go about doing things and I think you know, that's important to know going into to casting a vote to, to say who you want representing you. Um, I don't think there are bad choices with the slate of candidates that we have. Um, but but I do think that you, you have an opportunity to get to know candidates and, and to become engaged in the process. So I would really hope that everybody would do that and uh, get engaged in the process. Um, I think, you know, for, for me individually, I am really, really trying to make this about better communication. And and that's the the, the two main areas that I really would like us to improve on are communicating better with the membership so that the the membership is more engaged, not just that they feel more engaged, but they actually are more engaged. Um, and, And I think the other thing is making sure that we're doing things to get our brand out there. So people recognize the great work that is going on every day, not just by the people who have certain degrees or teach at universities or, you know, can become specialists, but but people who are doing clinical practice everywhere every day, because, you know, that's the the stories that we need to be telling.
1: That's awesome. Craig, thank you so much for joining us here on Speech Science.
4: Hey, Matt, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Everybody, this is Michelle. I have the opportunity to sit down with Yvette Heider, Dr. Yvette Heider. She is an ASHA fellow and a professor of speech language and hearing sciences at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Her research and teaching focuses on the influences of culture on communication development and disorders with emphasis in the areas of pragmatic language, and social communication with speakers of African American English, and with children with histories of maltreatment and prenatal alcohol exposure, as well as culturally responsive and globally sustainable practices. She's also recently published and co-authored a book on culturally responsive practices, and writes about competencies needed for global engagement. And why we have her on the podcast is cause she is also in the running for a position with Asha. So hello, Yvette. Hi. Welcome to Speech Science. Thank we are you. Thrilled to have you. And thank you for making the time uh, to come join me tonight sure. to be recording, and I know this will probably go up in the next week or so. But we're c- recording on a Wednesday evening. Mm-hmm. And um, first off, can you just what what ASHA position are you in the
5: running for, and and why? I am running for Vice President for Planning. Okay. And um, I'm really excited about the opportunity to run for this position. As you know, strategic planning is sort of the backbone to any organization. And it's the position that um, where you can work with others to set priorities, to give direction, Um, in the way that the direction to the organization, um, you're guiding that direction. Um, And it also includes in this position is planning, but also a liaison to the Multicultural Issues Board and to the International Issues Board. And I feel I have very strong skills in all three of those areas. you know, I've had 20 years of leadership and planning and national and international organizations. For example, I was chair of the Child Language Committee and the International Association for Logopedics and Phoniatrics. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a coordinator for 617 of ASHA, which is the Global Issues and Communication Disorders, um, Communication Sciences and Disorders. And then, That's always a um, example, right? <laughs> right. <every> title. Yes, <laughs> and then, communication um, disorders, whatever we have. I have a strong record of multicultural work, a strong record of international work. Um, I've co chaired university steering committees on diversity and inclusion. I chaired college, a college committee on diversity and inclusion. You mentioned the book, and I, I co teach a study abroad in Senegal. So I have a lot of strengths um, to bring to this position, and I think um, it fits me well, and I'm really excited to have an opportunity to help set standards and promote evidence-based and interprofessional, culturally responsive, and globally sustainable practice in our field.
0: What would you say, I know you kind of touched on what you hope to accomplish, but um, what would you say is the number one issue right now for speech pathologists and and, and also audiologists.
5: Yeah, um, I actually think there's kind of three, but my my top. If I had to hone it into one, mm-hmm. it just seems like we need to. Asha has done a lot to prepare the membership for providing services across cultures, and you know we've done a lot, but I think it's such so imperative now that we are able to engage in effective practice with this ever-changing society that we're living in. So there's, we're increasingly interconnected. Um, the world is more complex. And there are lots of ASHA members and students who are becoming speech-language pathologists and audiologists and speech scientists and language scientists who want to go abroad and provide services. There are Asha members who's already living abroad. Um, and there's increasingly um, movement of people from outside of the US into the US and vice versa. And wherever we find ourselves as practitioners, we need to be prepared to provide effective and sustainable services. And I think, for me, it just seems like that's one of the biggest issues
0: mm-hmm. that we're How- facing
5: is being prepared for that.
0: Um- I guess. How do we measure? How do we make sure that it is effective and is sustainable?
5: Yeah. Um, well, I think we're beginning to have these conversations about competencies in the membership, mm-hmm. right? And we we all are very. There's a um, there's already ethics, you know, a body of ethics that that guide our practice. There are social, I mean, um, language learning theories or theories that guide the the practice as a speech language pathologist, but we're just beginning to start having this conversation and start writing and researching and publishing about the types of, you need a little different information. You can't just focus on content. You also have to focus on how you develop relationships. How do you develop partnerships when you are working in, you know, cross-culturally and also outside of the country in which you are most familiar. So we're beginning to see some of these um, ideas trickle into the literature, which I think we just need to do more of that. It needs to be in classrooms. I also think, and this may not be the most popular position, but I think it needs to be in our standards of practice, and it's not. Mm -hmm. Cultural, cultural, competence is, and I'm putting competence in air quotes because I prefer cultural responsive practice, that term, but um, that is in our standards of practice, but how to engage internationally or in a global context in a way that you're developing a partnership and you're being reciprocal, that is not in our standards of practice yet.
0: Now, that almost made me think because um, I know one topic that's come up with ASHA recently, and and we've brought it up on the podcast, uh, a little bit about um, me. I have licenses or I've held licenses in four different states now because we're a a military family. And I know there's the discussion of that compact that ASHA is working towards to hopefully like other professions like nursing and Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what else, who have some cross-state lines, licensures. Um, Is that applicable? Is that something that we can, you know, I know other countries have different licensures as well, and you worked in another country. You said you take students to Senegal, but I'm not sure exactly the question I'm going for, but I'm curious how that can relate. Like, What is ASH's role in in that, just in our Mm -hmm. own country, but then also abroad?
5: Well, I think that Currently, what Asha is involved in, I hope I have the name of this. Um, they. We can they look it up later and
0: add it to the show notes working
5: too. With um, different countries. And so they've. Asha has been invited to different countries in different regions in order to. Of the world to. Um, to help buoy. Maybe that's the right word there, but to help kind of support. The, the types of services that people who are already working in those countries would like to see. And so I know that there's going, so ASHA is doing some conferences, collaborative conferences in these different regions of the world. Um, so that's one thing that ASHA is already doing. Um, I'm not so sure there could be like a a, a license that is the same because the resources and the manpower is different.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's,
5: let's take, for example, if you're working in um, Senegal, um, my understanding from interviewing a couple of speech-language pathologists there, that there are about five speech-language pathologists in the city, I mean in Senegal, but concentrated in the primary city, which is Dakar. When you think about going out into the rural areas, it's um, the there's not much services uh, being provided there because it's just difficult to get to. There aren't people there. And so we really need to think about how practice looks different. It's not going to look like it does in the United States, and it shouldn't. The license isn't going to be, you know, there may not even be licensure. Mm-hmm. It may be pro- providing... Support to community members to be able to implement services or to do assessments, or you know, so it's going to look we need to have a flexible mindset. Mm -hmm. Um, if if we're as we as we continue in this direction, and there's no we have no option, right? Because this is the way the world is happening, Mm -hmm. we're just increasingly interconnected and um so we have to have increasingly mental flexibility in order to th- to you know think outside of the box of how services might look and it's really not up to us right if we're working in other countries other countries know what they need and they know who they need and they know exactly what they need um what that what off, often is not available are the resources to put into place what they know they need. And so as we are working internationally, we really need to join people where they are, be invited, you know, to to um, be invited to, to partner with them. And then we're doing what they know that they need. We're helping them.
0: I like how you put that being invited to partner with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you did touch on you said, when I asked you the number one issue, but you mentioned that there 's two others. you have your top yeah. three, so yeah, you know.
5: the uh, couple of others that I was thinking of is that um, we need to continue to increase the diversity of the membership right so we have um, I have pulled up some numbers we have about eight there 's about a hundred and one hundred and ninety one plus. Um, speech language pathologists, audiologists, speech language hearing scientists, right, that are certified through ASHA. Only about 8% are members of a racialized group and I, you know, who would consider themselves people of color. Okay. There's um, uh, 5% are consider, would identify as Latinx, hmm. right? So Latinx or Hispanic. Um, There are about 530 international affiliates, so people who um, are ASHA members, but who are working outside of the um, country. And then we also have about 5% or maybe a little bit under 5% who are male. And so, you know, those numbers are pretty small when you could think about the number of people in the in the United States mm-hmm. you know how many males are there in the United States I don't have that number right at the top of my hand but I do know a lot more than it, the five percent right? right a lot more than five percent <laughs> and then there's 27 28 percent of the U.S. population are um, um, people of color so but they're eight percent of ASHA and so we it's important to build the skills in the professionals that we have to be able to work cross-culturally and internationally. But I think it's also important to um, grow the profession, continue to incorporate more and more diversity in the people who are providing those services because we're working everywhere, right? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, and you you made me think of, the last two years before we, my family, we recently moved to Kentucky, but mm. um, I was in El Paso, Texas, right mm. on the border of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And my coworkers, all except for a couple, were fluently bilingual because they were native Spanish speakers and Mexican American themselves. And the vast majority of our patients also had Spanish in the home, if not the primary exactly. language, their L1. So um, it definitely forced me to brush up on my Spanish skills, but also kind of opened a window into another part of speech pathology, where you really
5: have to think about beyond English, you know, standard Absolutely. English. Yeah. Absolutely. And do you know how many ASHA members um, identify as bilingual? I don't. How many? Six percent. Six percent. Wow. Six percent. Yeah. Those are 19, eight, nine, 2018 figures. Wow. Yeah, I know. So. And I'm
0: thinking that the clinic I worked at, all of them were. <laughs> right. Right. So yeah. it's very regional, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely.
5: Yeah. Although I, I do have hope because more and more I teach at Western. So in Kalamazoo. And so you have different cohorts of students coming through and more and more students are bilingual or have some facility in another language. Okay. You know, every year there's more and more, yeah, which is promising. I think
0: definitely, yeah. And my, you know, my second language is um, American Sign Language from working with oh, wonderful. deaf part of hearing, uh-huh. uh, which is its own culture and <laughs> communication. Right. But, um, that's a definitely a you know our country is only getting more more diverse and more cross cultural generations. So right,
5: yeah. Well, I am working on fluency in Spanish and French. I use when I'm traveling in West Africa, okay. <clears throat> and um, so it's really, <clears throat> excuse me, it's it's really challenging to get up to be in a place where you feel like you're fluent,
2: mm-hmm.
5: um, particularly when I'm in English so often. You know, okay. at home I, I I speak Spanish with my husband, but at, you know most of the day i'm talking and thinking and reading in english so it's yeah. it's just i know it's a challenge that
0: the reading part was a challenge too when i worked with students whose first language was asl because there's no written mm-hmm. form to asl so mm-hmm. they have to really be become bilingual themselves because to read and write they have to write in english
5: right mm-hmm.
0: so always a challenge <laughs> So um, I am fascinated by your research, just based on the bio, and I started clicking through some different things. Um, is there anything else, topics-wise, for the Asha position that you wanted to touch on uh, before I?
5: Um, I go oh, before you go into that, that, the other the 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 other thing I think, just one other critical mm-hmm. issue, I think that we should be. But there's kind of two. But so one, you, just quickly. I, I want to hear of both. So <laughs> okay. We have so to- one, one is thinking about interprofessional education and interprofessional practice. That's a big thing um, that we've been talking about in the American Speech-Language-Hearing Association. It's a medical um, model, but we have adapted that language, and we've already talked. We've already, we've always been not maybe not always, but for a very long time, focused on collaboration across disciplines. And, um, but, but one of the things when you are preparing pre-service speech language pathologists and audiologists, the, the curriculum, c- curricula that we have, and the structure of the institutions make it very difficult for IPE and IPP activities to occur. Um, and, you know, I think it would take a complete revamping of the way we think about offering education to, um, you know, to, to model the, an ideal, um, educational experience, you know, for individuals who are learning to work across disciplines and, um, and that you know that takes a long time. and It will be very difficult to do, but I see that as there's this this interest and this push for us to be more engaged in interprofessional education, interprofessional practice. But we are existing in institutions and structures that make that really difficult. Um, and in some places, even in my department, it it still happens. But it it happens at the stress of trying to put that on top of, you know, a, or within a structure that doesn't work well within. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth thing I think is important is thinking about how we continue to reach populations that have minimal means for paying for services. And um, of course, if you are a child and you're in the school system in the United States, there's, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Improvement Act, which requires you to have services and free appropriate um, public education. But if you're outside of that age range, if you're not in school, um, are there, I mean, how do we is there a pro bono mechanism that we can offer, you know, individuals who don't have the means to or the insurance to pay for? services, which increases accessibility, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. And I so think m- are- um, very often, myself included, that ASHA members, we, we miss that elections are even going on and that we can, mm. you know, take a role in, in what ASHA is doing and have a voice somehow. Right. Um, and that might be through the candidate that, you know, we're supporting. But um, I guess what would you want to tell members about this election and about uh, what ASHA is doing or could be doing?
5: Well, I think it's, you know, there's a very small number, and I don't have that number right at my fingertips, of people who actually vote. And it's just so important because the people that the membership is voting, are, are voting for, are those people who are helping to shape, for example, in this position, helping to shape the next steps or the next few years of Asha's direction, mm-hmm. and um, it's just really important for your vo- voice to be heard through the candidates that you select. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, of the th- all three of us are very well equipped for that position. And there are some similarities and there are some differences in terms of our focus, I believe. And, um, and I just think that the um, ASHA membership needs to be able to weigh all the options and determine, you know, which direction they, that they agree that the organization should go in and vote for that person.
0: And forgive me, I, I feel like maybe I should know this, but how long is the position elected for?
5: It's three years.
0: It is three years. Okay. That I couldn't remember. (laughs) um, All right. Well, the next part is I really wanted to touch on get to know the candidate and who you are and your specialization. And um, why why did you become an SLP? We can start there.
5: (laughs) Well, it's sort of a long story, but I'll try to make it fast. Okay. I was um, in junior high school and they had a career day. And as a child, I was always this person who I collected. There was these little word puzzles in the newspaper. So I would always collect those word games. I did crossword puzzles. I did words. I was always fascinated. My sisters and I made up a language. You know, we walked through Hughes and Hatcher with my parents, making, speaking this pretend language and thinking that people would think that we actually were speaking another language. So I was always very curious about language. And then, so when I went to the library um, in my junior high school for this career, day, they had this like little file, um, three by five card file. And the librarian asked me what I liked. And so I told her about puzzles and word games and things like that. And she said, well, read this card. And it was the card about speech language pathology. And I think at the time, it was just called Speech Pathology. And um, this would have been in the late 60s, early 70s. And so um, they, I read about it, and I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, I went home and told my parents. How old were you then again? I was in junior high school, so I think I was probably in the fifth Grade. Wow, I love what it. What is that like? I don't, know, I can't remember what age it was, but I'm pretty sure it was in the fifth. I was at the beginning of junior high. Mm-hmm. And um, I went home and told my parents, and they um, had the, my parents are really amazing. They had the um, forethought of getting me involved with a speech language pathologist. So I candy striped, and it must have been over the summer at a hospital that my aunt worked at, and with the host candy stripe uniform and everything. <laughs> um, and my job, I was working in a rehab center p- department that had speech language pathology, audiology, occupational therapy, physical therapy. And I was assigned to the speech language pathologist. And so my job was to p- select the children's book and read to a little boy who was in a coma after a a car accident. Every day I went, I picked out a book in the reading center and I went, go in there and read to him. And one day I walked in and they were running around, where is he at, where is he at, where is she? And you know, my heart was beating. I was like, what did I do? You know, that I, I thought something, that I did something wrong. They said, no, no, come in here. And the little boy had awakened.
0: Wow. But
5: he wasn't recognizing He was being afraid of other people, and so they asked me to say something to him, and he said, Mama, he recognized my voice,
0: Wow! because
5: I was reading to him, and that was it. I knew from that moment that this was my calling. This is what I was here to do.
0: Wow. I can't, you know, I think a lot of SLPs that I meet don't have that moment so young. That's
5: pretty beautiful. (laughs) I, I feel really, yeah, it feels really good to have that. I mean, it's just, it was very powerful at yeah. the time. And the field has, you know, uh, changed a lot. And, but I've, the other beautiful thing, as you know, about being a speech language pathologist is that you can change settings and they're so different, right? So it's almost like learning a new job. Every time you change, because working in a hospital is very different than working in a school, even though you Mm -hmm. have skills that transfer, but you're learning a new system. And so that it keeps it fresh and exciting. Absolutely.
0: Your title is the same, but your environment is completely different. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anything else about you? Family, hobbies? Um, obviously your research interests I'd love to hear a little bit more about what's going on with that currently.
5: Yeah um, well in terms of my research I'll talk about the hobbies in a a little bit but I'll talk first about the research interests. Um, I'm currently working on well it's already developed I have developed a um, assessment measure that looks at uh, um, social communication and pragmatic language And we're piloting or collecting some data in Greece and Brazil. We're starting data collection in Cyprus um, and in the US. Um, And this is, and I'm collecting it in the Children's Trauma Assessment Center, where I work, or supervise students. And so it's very exciting. We have enough data from Greece to start analyzing that data and testing if the items on the instrument are working and working well. It has several different components. Wow. Um, there's a parent checklist, a teacher checklist, a child self-checklist for children who are eight and older. Um, there is a classroom observation form that the speech language pathologist would use. And so the, the parent and ch- uh, teacher checklists are really like those tier one, if you think about response to intervention. So it's that tier one mass screening that can be given to every child and then the speech language pathologist classroom observation form would be used by the speech language pathologist to observe this child in real life settings it could be a classroom it could be home it could be on the playground wherever this child is in you know engaging with others to determine whether or not there are social communication or or um, pragmatic language concerns
0: And you mentioned uh, your, your place of work, the Children's Trauma Assessment Center. Assessment Center. center. Mm-hmm. Tell me what that is.
5: Yes. Yeah, so this is a transdisciplinary assessment center there, um, that was started night. We just celebrated our 19th year. Happy birthday. <laughs> it was in, in February. And so um, the director is a social worker, a professor named... Um, Jim Henry, and there's um, occupational therapy involved, speech language pathology, a pediatrician. Um, um, Sometimes we have students who are nurses and sometimes we have students who are counselors um, or, you know, learning to be um, psychologists. Uh, And so we really are engaged in transdisciplinary work, but we primarily provide comprehensive assessments to children with histories of maltreatment and prenatal alcohol exposure. And um, it's really difficult work. And because when you think it can't get any worse, somehow a child walks through with a history that is worse than the story you couldn't even imagine. Um, But then... You know, the child walks in, and they he's he or she is just a child, right? They are still playful and laughing, and um, so you know, we really work on just trying to hold their stories while also providing a comprehensive assessment that helps them get the support and the resources that they need to be successful. Um, and. We primarily do assessment, but not only assessment. There are social workers who have training and licenses in providing certain trauma-informed or trauma-based interventions, and um, so we have an opportunity to do that. Um, I've been working on some thinking and and writing, um, although it's not published yet, about trauma-based intervention from the perspective of speech-language pathologists. Um, with this population, there's also a need for audiological service because um, children who have exposure to alcohol, there, there is a connection between um, um, uh, middle ear uh, difficulties and hmm. children with th- those histories. So um, it's very important, very difficult work, but very important work. And, you know, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else, really. So Mm -hmm. I supervise students. All of us, all of the faculty members have students that are placed there for practicum. Um, And then the Children's Trauma Assessment Center also employs um, counselors or social workers to do some of the, they're there like all the time, writing reports and getting background information on children and preparing files. So it's really, um, it's really a wonderful place.
0: Wow. And how, um, how long have you been in that facility?
5: Um, that I was one of the founding member, founding organizers of the children's children hey. yeah so so 19 years there was five of us and jim it was jim henry connie blackpond connie blackpon is a um, social worker and counselor and they were actually working in the field um and note and realize that there was this disconnect between between children who were in um dhs services you know in the welfare system there was this disconnect between the kinds of services that they were getting and their what they needed and it was very disjointed and they had this dream of having this cohesive clinic um, that will provide assessments a comprehensive assessment to for this population so that you know going into care out of home placements or um, or children that have these histories would have some comprehensive information about what they needed to support their development. Mm-hmm. And um, they had the foresight to invite other disciplines. So I was invited to the table, this is when they were planning as a speech language pathologist, Dr. Ben Atchison was invited as an occupational therapist and Dr. Mark Sloan, who's a pediatrician, Um, was invited. And so we all kind of sat around and we envisioned like how we wanted this clinic to look and and we really wanted it to be transdisciplinary and not interdisciplinary where you had, or multidisciplinary where you had like this connection between the disciplines. And so we wanted it to be transdisciplinary. We dreamed about it um, and we you know how, when you first open up the doors, you have this trepidation is anybody going to show up? You know, we had done a field, you know, a small field study um, to get a sense of if we built this center, would there be interest? And there was overwhelming interest, but you know how you're not quite sure people are going to follow through. Um, well, 19 years later, we still have. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad how many people there are that need the services that are in the um, D- DHS services system that are in out-of-home placements, um, but we're glad we can provide this kind of service to that population.
0: But it shows how much of that need is there.
5: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, awesome. And uh, anything about yourself, hobbies, interests, including students, yeah. of course. But.
5: Well, well, of course. You know, I still do crossword puzzles, and I still work games, and they still fascinate me, languages. Um, and, uh, but I also am a violinist. I have played violin since I oh. was nine years of age. I have um, terrible performance anxiety. So if I'm playing in my own living room, that's great. If I'm playing for an audience, I'm like, really, it really stresses me out. (laughs) Um, But I love it. I'm in love with the violin and um, I'm absolutely sure that I will be playing till the day I die. I also play piano, but not as often as I do the violin. I um, crochet and my main crochet projects are afghans like big bedspreads
0: wow yeah
5: yeah mm-hmm. so um i actually
0: um had connected with a woman who's an incredibly talented crochet um artist i would say mm-hmm. because um at a craft fair in el paso texas and i bought all our nieces and nephews uh, matching characters that she oh. to match these books um including i don't know if you've heard of the story of the gruffalo it's a really funny little story about I haven't, but I'm
5: going to write down that name Yeah. And
0: she created, once you look it up you'll see, but it's this monster with this hodgepodge of descriptions and a purple wart on his nose and that kind of thing, <laughs> and she made one she crocheted a gruffalo <laughs> for me for the book.
5: <laughs> that's great um, and I guess the last thing is that as I go into my, get into my headed toward my 60s I'm rather close there Um, I have started back running. I was always a runner and as a younger woman, but I thought that this, that hobby could take me into my older age and it feels good. So I'm, I'm doing that and entering races and having fun. Yeah. Derry, uh, signed up for any races currently? Um, I am signed up for 10 K at the, um, gorgeous run for, the health of it here in Kalamazoo. My nice. one of my sisters and I, we kind of—that's what we do together. We kind of travel around and run in these races.
0: Right, hey, it's an excuse to yeah. travel too. Right,
5: yeah. So
0: I've only been to Kalamazoo once, but I hear wonderful things. It was back in college for a volleyball tournament. Oh, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, and just on our podcast recording the other night, you know how the Google Doodle. When you go to school, mm-hmm. they'll celebrate different anniversaries. Um, on Monday was the gentleman who created the tactile tiles for the blind, yep. right? I saw that. And is right. it Western Michigan? I believe you guys have a big orientation mobility. Yes, program, right?
5: r- absolutely. We yes. do. And um, that's in the same college that we are in.
0: Oh, really? Because really. I, I, I mentioned working with the deaf, but I worked at the Colorado School for the Deaf and the Blind, and that's where... I mean, I learned so much from the O&Ms, and I was telling Matt and Mike, our co-hosts, that I want to bring an O&M on for an interview because they they work on a lot of, especially those language concepts mm-hmm. um, that we work on.
5: So. Yeah, so the blindness and low vision uh, department is in College of Health and Human Services, and then there is a, um, I think, up the street and across the street is another is a school but I think they work closely together the department in that that school so yes it's a
0: I know the Colorado school for the blind had a couple staff members who graduated from western Michigan okay
5: great wonderful
0: so the name is out there for (laughs) Uh, many different things I'm sure is there anything that I haven't touched on that you would like to share Mm. Especially
5: relating to your run for the Asha position, of course. Right. I think. I think. Um, I think. In terms of some things I'd like to accomplish, is to you know, in collaboration with other board members, is to um, not only advance Asha's strategic objectives, which would for the vice president of planning. Um, I think would focus on objective six, which is increasing diversities of the membership. Seven would be um, um, international, yeah, international engagement. And then eight is cultural competency or responsiveness. Um, I like to increase the diversity of the work with other board members to increase the diversity of the membership. and then increase student involvement. I don't think I mentioned that before, but in decision-making. So the kind of like growing your own um, population of future leaders in the field.
0: Mm-hmm. And you being a professor, you work with, with the new, Students. the soon-to-be SLPs. Right. Day. Yes. So. Yeah. Um, Matt had a really good question that reminded okay. me. He asked one of the folks who came on, um, for a position, he said, "Okay, let's say tomorrow you are suddenly in charge of all of ASHA. Right? What is the first thing you would do?"
5: <laughs> well, for me, I would I would put in to um, the standards some global competencies. Okay, that's what I would do.
0: I like it. Very yeah. Good. Kind of fun. <laughs> um well i have really enjoyed speaking with you and thank um, you i think we would love to have you back on just for your expertise and experience too to hear more about what you're doing research wise so as thank that you study progressives maybe we can bring you back on the show
5: sure that sounds fine sounds that great
0: great and um you know we'll keep encouraging the members to to Find out about all the candidates and make sure and to vote. vote. Right? That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's been a joy. And hopefully maybe in some point we can meet in person and not just over a screen.
5: Well, I hope so. Maybe at the next Asha. Huh? Yeah. We're hoping to
0: um, Matt and Mike and I are hoping to all three be there. So that oh, wonderful. There. Okay. And maybe Great. do a live recording as well. <laughs> That would be fun. I haven't been able to go since Asha Denver, so it's been a little way, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I will thank you, me. Michelle.
1: Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hott. I am so excited today to be joined by Dr. Kathy Sofel, professor and program director from the University of Nebraska Omaha, and also running for the VP of planning position from Asha. Uh, Kathy has served with the students from the Lakota Sioux population. She was a SLP program. Uh, What is the SLP program for the Easter Seals? I was going to explain that, but I don't actually know what that is. (laughs) It's a good question.
2: Um, When I, I was my, well, we were, my husband and I were moved to Bismarck, North Dakota for his position. And. At that time, um, the Easter SEALs had a freestanding clinic, and Easter SEALs used to be much more dominant, particularly on the East Coast, with a lot of freestanding, more like rehab community clinics. And one of the things they were really wanting was to open a program for speech and language pathology. But the interesting thing was, North Dakota had a licensure law but they had no programs to prepare master's degree people. So I was um, a unique bird moved in from the South to um, Bismarck, North Dakota. And they found out that I was a master's degree SLP and immediately said, what can you do for us? And so we started a Easter Seal speech and language clinic uh, that served the community. It was very broad in the sense that you served all ages. Also worked with the uh, community health center there, so children who had significant communication problems and or behavior. um, Kids that today we would probably see in schools as being on the autism spectrum. So I did a lot of consulting with them. And then that actually is what led to being contacted by the Bureau of Indian Affairs Oh. to work with, uh, first of all, um, Child Find. So they wanted me to um, go to the Standing Rock Zoo reservation and identify kids who might need services. And then from there, uh, hired me to work with the teachers at their Head Start program. So in the summer, and I did not do this in the winter months in North Dakota, I have to Confess, <laughs> um, it was a summer gig <laughs> and um, it, was, it was 75 miles each way wow. so uh, yeah so Bureau of Indian Affairs said you know we'll pay your mileage what do you need we just need you to hopefully work with the staff so they were better equipped really to help the kids develop their language skills their communication skills so that they were closer to being kindergarten ready. And that was a fabulous experience. I probably learned way more than they ever learned from me because culturally.
1: Yeah.
2: um, I mean, people in your audience don't see me, but if they know anything about who I am, I'm Danish. Okay. So I'm pretty fair haired and look very different than everyone else I was working with on the reservation. It was the first time in my life I've ever been the only one. And I have to say, from a cultural standpoint, it was a fabulous learning experience to to suddenly be thrown in to an environment where you have to figure out how to become part of that environment. So when you ask the question about what is communication, there you go. That was um, a great opportunity to figure out how do I communicate with people who, by choice, choose not to speak to me because I speak English, but will talk around me in their native tongue. And I need to break over that barrier. And, you know, where do I go from here to make that happen? So, yeah, it was, um, it was a challenging and rewarding, and I loved every minute of it. And it's probably part of what encouraged me to work more in the early childhood arena.
1: I was, I was, gonna, was gonna say, so was that pretty um, early in your career then? It was,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. I had worked in rehab. Um, I had done just a short time in the public schools during my CFY, and then I had worked in uh, hospital rehab. And then we were transferred to North Dakota, and. The world just all opened up all kinds of possibilities. So, yeah,
1: that's good. So what brought you into the world of speech therapy? My background was radio, and I wanted to, be, I wanted to do more and became an SLP, and now I host an SLP podcast. What was your background? How did you find the field, and, and what was that spark that got you there?
2: You know, many of us probably, many people I talk to, came about this path in some of the same ways I did. I was in a communications major, and they required me to take a course, intro course, in communication sciences and disorders, as we refer to it now. I think it was probably called Introduction to Communication Disorders or something along those lines. I found it fascinating, and so, for the first time, I became aware of, wow, there's this whole profession out there that I had no idea about. So I continued to pick up additional courses in speech path while I finished my undergraduate major in secondary education communications. And when I finished, <clears throat> when I finished my bachelor's, I was just short of a, a audiology course. So I immediately went back and did my master's and picked up those deficiencies. And truly, I've never looked back. I mean, I've I've drawn on that background, I think, in just public speaking and communication. But, uh, you know, the field is so much more dynamic, more challenging, more, to me, (laughs) than I think what I would have had. But, you know, I don't know. You don't get to live both paths. So, yeah. But that's what got me there. That's awesome. I tell students all the time, you know, the variety in our discipline. You're never, if you choose to diversify, you're never locked in one place. And kind of my history is evidence of that. I've done a lot of different things. So, yeah.
1: And some of the <laughs> things you've done, I'm reading through your your resume. You were professor, department chair, and program director at Wichita State. Currently, you're the professor and program director at Nebraska Omaha. You were the undergraduate, master's, and doctoral research, or directed those. Been named the outstanding NISLA advisor. Received the honors of Nebraska's Speech and Language Hearing Association. You co-chaired the 2011 convention. Uh, that was
2: for, so fun, I have to tell you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So with all of that, you sound kind of like me, maybe, maybe can't say no. (laughs) What makes you want to do the VP of planning?
2: You know, yeah. And you hit a few of those highlights along the way, Matt. In a way, I feel like I've been training for this for a long time. And um, I have been very involved in both the state association and the national association and In and out in a variety of different positions, but a couple of things. One is I feel like um, I've had a lot of opportunities to be involved in leadership roles. I served on community boards of directors and certainly within our state association, but I was president of the Council of State Association Presidents. And in that position, and I'm coming around to the answer to your question here, but in that position, a couple of things happened. One was, we were struggling as state associations and the Council of State Associations to improve our relationship with ASHA. At that time, we were almost seen as kind of adversarial. It was like ASHA, somehow regarded that council as wanting to take over the world and we regarded asha as i mean it was kind of a we they thing for a short period of time so when i came into the council state association presidents it became clear to me that there was this tension between the two groups and i I struggled to kind of figure out you know what was the history and where did this come from and what do we need to do here differently because this should not be I mean, nobody's, there's a big world out there, and nobody's going to own all of it. So let's see what we can do. So as I was on the board for the Council of State Association President, CSAP, the discussions came along, and we talked about start, starting a new committee, and it had, it was named at the time the um, Committee on State and National Association Relations, and it still exists today. But at that time, I was put in charge of getting that up and running, and I was told I needed to contact the then president of ASHA. That just intimidated the hell out of me. (laughs)
5: Let me
2: just say, I thought, how can I pick up the phone and just call the president of ASHA, for goodness sakes? It's just me, this little Person from Nebraska. And so I did. And the person I had to contact was Catherine Butler. Catherine Butler was the goddess of child language at the time when child language was really emerging. So I looked at that as double sort of, you know, intimidation. So I contacted her and she was this incredibly human person. I mean, she, she said, when can we meet? Let's get together for coffee. You know, where are you? Let's do this. It immediately, I mean, it's the whole thing of your question of what is communication. It immediately opened the doors. And from the beginning, she said, absolutely. As president of ASHA, I'm 100% behind this. Let's make this happen. Let's do it. And moving forward, we did. Out of that conversation, Kay Butler was became like a fairy godmother to me. She was a, the kind of person who looks for opportunities to network people in ways that they might not otherwise be connected and really kind of open doors. Um, she said to me one time when she was asking me to take on the presidency of, of the um, Division for deafness and hard of hearing for CEC and she's like I you know I really think you should chair this and I'm like oh (laughs) keepers. okay I mean I had little kids I was in a full-time position I you know all these things and she said before you answer me let me just say never say no always say yes (laughs) I'm like that gives me a lot of trouble but it does open a lot of doors so I often do think back to her very words to me was, you never know where it will take you. Say yes, do the best you can. If you do good work, the best you can, that's all anybody can ask for. I'm like, well, okay, so let's go. <laughs> and you know, that was um, I think one of those, those kind of aha moments that you periodically have in your career where. Certain people really do kind of turn your head around a little bit and make you broaden your thinking. And for me, that was an important piece. Moving forward, do I think this position is right for me? I do. And I think it is in part because, especially with the experiences I had as department chair, which included not only a very large undergraduate and master's, but also an AUD program. Mm-hmm. It was just really getting its feet on the ground and a PhD program. So we had both, you know, audiology and speech path in the PhD program, of course. But I think I got closer to the issues that audiology deals with. And so those 10 years as the department chair there really did help me, I think, be a lot maybe more sensitive to the audiology issues. And um, not that I've ever not felt connected, but I certainly felt differently connected in that role. So yeah.
1: That makes sense. I I sit as the school's rep for the state of Ohio for OSLA. And when an audiologist will ask me a question about in the schools as as a speech path, I. I don't even know this. I know their scope, but I don't know the intricacies. So sure. I almost feel you. I don't want to say useless, but I have to go. To luckily, our our OSLA president is an audiologist, <laughs> and I can say, help me. Right. Right. Do you see, like, I, I, from a speech path side, I, I could see how an audiologist could be disconnected from. Asha, because it's a lot of you know, better hear, you know, better hearing and speech month is coming up, but a lot of times we focus on just the speech part. Do you think there's a way that you can help build that gap that bridge between the audiologists and SLPs with Asha or You know,
2: kind of like with that whole bridge that I was talking about yeah. between two organizations? It's all about communication just really at a grassroots level. I think what happens is we sometimes create a perception that maybe doesn't exist across the broader scope of people, but because maybe some folks are more outspoken, maybe they bring issues more to the front page, that we tend to focus on those. And you know, that happens today in our media, it happens in pretty much everything we all do. The, you know, the the old adage about the squeaky wheel. Yeah. (laughs) In a way, I think from my perspective, the the way I can most work to bridge gaps is to talk with people. I'm pretty much open to, if you have something to say, I'm here to listen. Now, it may be a very different perspective than what I came to the conversation with. And we may have to wrestle with getting some understanding. But it's, it's again, it's all about where's the breakdown? Where uh, Functionally, if we're not working to address the breakdown, then we're not going to bridge that gap. We're just going to continue to let the river kind of flow through it. And I don't see any point in that. It just (laughs) takes a lot of energy and it diffuses all kinds of positive possibilities. So for me, I think let's put it on the table and let's deal with it. Uh,
1: I know from serving as an ASHA SEAL previously and currently, people will come to me in Ohio and say, hey, what's ASHA doing? I pay all these dues. I get nothing out of it. My caseload is at 95 students. My school district has said they'll fire me if I don't see them, et cetera. Right. Then you see on the, the Facebook comments when ASHA releases a, a lighthearted video to remind you to pay your dues and people get <laughs> mad because they say, oh my gosh, is this what my dues are doing? How come you're not fighting for X, Y, or Z? How, what, can, what do you see yourself in the position of VP for planning to kind of help? You know, you said reach out. How how can you start to repair some of those squeaky wheels? I guess that have turned their back on Asha, but still get the C's because we quote need it, and that's the only reason they see that. Like, how can we bridge that gap?
2: <laughs> you know, I think um, a real priority I have for this position. I mean, we have this strategic pathway. It's all conceptually beautifully arranged and laid out. I would guess that, and maybe I'm wrong about percentages. This is just a number. I would say at least 85% of our members have no idea. They don't know what it is or why it is. But more important to me is they don't know where they fit. hmm so you have this beautiful thing and you have this map and it shows, you know, we're going to grow and we're going to take this in stages and these are the things we're going to do. But where do I see myself fitting in? And that's one of the areas that I've been really, um, and I told you I'm not very pretentious, so I don't, I don't blow my own horn very well, but i have been very successful in connecting people and ideas that often don't see where they would fit together at all i think part of that is just that you need to listen you need to you need to say to people i'm here if you feel like you're not getting your needs met what needs are you not getting met and where where can we start to work together to figure out what's the niche that we're not filling and if the if there's if there's a potential over here let's tap into it um it it's with everything i mean that's that's where we all are right i'm in the grocery store i can't find what i want on the shelf if i don't tell the man at the front hey i can't find this he doesn't know what i'm looking for he doesn't know that i go away disgruntled well ask you know it's 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 pretty simple really what we do <laughs> is not i mean it is rocket science in many ways but at the same time it it's not and what we all know is what is this whole discipline that we're in we listen we communicate so if i'm if i'm listening i can put a voice to your needs and i guess i'm only one person but I have a pretty good working sense of ASHA and its workings and some of the boards that I've chaired for ASHA, the Scientific and Professional Education Board was a fabulous way to really dig into a different side of ASHA in terms of the continuing ed and so forth. But one of the things I realized when I took over that role as chair of that board we had this huge board and all these people came to this face-to-face meeting and at the end of the day all i heard was everybody saying what they wanted just for their niche but nobody talking about how can we work together to make any of these initiatives happen so i said to my colleagues at asha you know i'm not sure that this board is structured the way it needs to be structured in today's world let's let's figure out what when did this mission get written i mean it's here in front of me i see that but where did this come from what's the history behind it and what we discovered was that board was created in 1975 wow that had never been revisited in 1975 it did serve the right purpose it included the pub board and the student organization and the special interests and all of that in 1975 30 no 40 years later it's not serving the same purpose and the purpose it's serving is a 1975 purpose so we had to completely undo unravel redo reconstruct everything (laughs) and to do that and i actually got an email just about 10 days ago from my counterpart at asha who said you would be so happy you would be so proud of how we are functioning because it is so good now and i'm like well great because we worked really (laughs) hard to make that happen but it's not about any one of those people who were on that board. It was all about, we were all there serving a mission that wasn't relevant anymore. So those are the kinds of things that I think you have to be willing to kind of take some bruises. Take, I mean, I felt like I was pretty beat up as the chair of that board at the end of the first day. I was like, man, I'm failing here. And (laughs) something's got to, something's got to be different or i need to be different or whatever and so I, you know i think sometimes we just have to be able to step back and say talk to me tell me where we are tell me what's going on now let's see how we can identify some different connecting points and for me i look at the strategic plan it's it's all set around the vision it's all set around the mission but i don't think people see themselves there and Maybe they don't see themselves there because they don't know how to get on board, how to fit in, or how to voice their needs. I'm not sure always, mm-hmm. but those are the questions I think we ask.
1: I, I love what you said, and I, and I have to give you credit because as I was looking through your resume and, and see that you're, you're a professor, and you have to st- find a way to connect with our students. <laughs> I, do. I I've had a couple students over the last three years, and as I get older, I find it harder and harder to connect because as I get older, the students stay the same age. The 23, yes <laughs> 22, 23 years old, they don't have kids. My kids get older, and I find the things to try to to connect are older and older and older. Um, I was talking to my intern the other day, and I referenced a 2000s TV show, and she had never heard of it. (laughs) How do you find yourself trying to bridge that gap in the classroom, and do you think that'll help yourself connect with the newer ASHA members versus just the people that have been there for five, 10, 15 years?
2: You know, it's just so funny that you started this conversation (laughs) where you did a few minutes ago. A student I had in my class a couple semesters ago was I came out of my class, my classroom on Tuesday afternoon. And I walked out and she was sitting in the hallway and I I said, oh, you know, what are you working on? And so we started chatting. Well, what I learned from her was that she is coaching a high school speech team and that they are going to a national competition. Actually, it's kind of, I sort of merged two things there. She coaches this team, but she herself is going to a national competition where she will be speaking. I said, oh, well, what what type of speaking do you compete in? And she kind of looked at me funny and she goes, well, you know something about this stuff? And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, What are you, what are your areas? And she said, well, I'm going to do impromptu and i said and extemporaneous and she went wow like you really do know something about this <laughs> so i let her tell her story and what she was doing and this is this is an area she's not competed in before she typically competes in a different area and so we started talking about it and and she said so how do you know anything about this my pathway into speech path i said i told her briefly how i got into speech path she went my gosh dr sofa i had no idea about that i didn't know that about you and i said you know that's why i like to talk with you guys because i'm a person besides just who you see in front of the classroom and you know we had a good laugh and chit-chatted away i think those are the those are the ways we connect this is, you know, this is a barely twenty-something, and there are there are ways in our lives that we can pull together. Maybe we didn't live it, but we can find ways to connect to it. And some here's the other funny story that came back to me today. And this one, this one took me totally off guard. I was talking with one of our newer faculty members, who's she's. Very young, she's got two tiny kids at home. She's a delightful, wonderful woman. And she had a guest lecturer in a classroom yesterday. Well, the guest lecturer was one of my former students. I, this is my second rodeo at UNO. I was there for 16 years, I went away, and then I came back three years ago. She said, in the middle of this guest speaker's lecture to this now graduate class, The guest speaker said, now, I'm going to tell you something I learned from Dr. Stolfo when she was my teacher. This is a tool that you can put in your tool belt. (laughs) So we had a really good laugh about it because it was like, okay, that is kind of a saying that I probably did somewhere (laughs) along the line use. I don't know. But obviously it stuck. And so... Maybe everything we do doesn't get totally outdated, even though my daughter, who is in technology, can't believe how much I say to her, but I don't know how to do that." She's like, "Mom, come on, this is simple <laughs> stuff <laughs> Whoa. okay i I can learn it so yeah.
1: that's well, that's I funny know. you say the, the about the tool belt at the end of every show, we do the be a willow don't be an Oak nope tree as our as our ending oh, thing uh-huh. And I got that from my clinical supervisor, Janice Wright. And every time I introduce a new topic to one of the teachers I work with in the high school, and they kind of give me that look of, this seems like a really new thing I don't want to do. I'm always like, hey, (laughs) be a willow. It'll be okay. We'll weather the storm together. And I had a teacher the other day. She said something happened to the schedule. And I gave her the look. And she goes, Matt, be a willow. And I was like, okay. Okay. has now come 360.
2: (laughs) It does sometimes come back to haunt you.
1: (laughs) So I got one more question about the the ASHA VP before we get to know you a little bit more. Okay. Let's say you win. And at the end of your VP of planning time, what would you want to see have been accomplished that would make you feel that you did a good thing for ASHA?
2: You know, I was thinking about how to measure... people's connections to ASHA. And it's, it's a bit like these groups that are trying to measure um, investments they make in environmental issues. Uh, there's business terminology for it and I'm probably not gonna be able to use the right terminology, but for me, I look at if I've, if I've done anything, have I increased the number of people who maybe make contact to ASHA for a, a, a particular area? So did we get more volunteers signing up? Did we get more people who call the action line and say, you know, I want to do X, Y, or Z? Do we get more people who look different than me? joining ASHA, staying with ASHA, becoming active members of ASHA, that's not easy. And we grow in numbers. And I know that in that growth, we have a much broader diversity than certainly we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But do all of those individuals feel like they see themselves in ASHA? Do they feel like they have a connection? If if we can measure those connections, and we can see that, it's hard to say more because more than what? But we got almost two hundred thousand people in this organization. We're huge. We talk about being client centric. We talk about being consumer driven. Our consumers of ASHA are our members, and how much are we really driven to serve our members in a way that people feel like they've been touched? And yes, that is hard to measure. And there are better minds than mine that can help me figure out how to sort of tally those things. But I I just feel like when you know I have students who come back to me from 20 years ago and say you know what i still remember you made me feel this way it's all about how you make people feel do they feel connected do they feel as though they belong if they don't feel like they belong they're not going to volunteer they're not going to pick up the phone and call then they will become that front page news that's the squeaky wheel so for me it's more about. Can we create more of a greater sense of feeling like Asha really does represent me and I see myself there? That's probably the best way I can capture it.
1: That's awesome. I love that.
2: <laughs> if I were less, but but we're all known for having a lot of words. So
1: I was gonna say my uh, my supervisor in the schools, we all bought the speech mask bought her a gavel with her name on it for during speech meetings, she can get our attention. Uh, (laughs) There you go. So I want to get to know you just a little bit. And I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and feel free to say, Matt, I don't want to answer that question. If I, if you don't want to answer that question. Okay. So where are you from originally? Where were you born? How did you get to Nebraska? All that fun stuff.
2: Omaha. Omaha's home for me. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, we've lived a few other places, but, uh, Omaha—I always have regarded Omaha as home, and um, I, you know, I felt like I was ready to come back here uh, when I was I, I i was at a point where I needed to probably get a little closer back to Omaha than I was. I have a 96-year-old dad here, and it takes a village to raise a 96-year-old dad, so it was a good time to. It was an opportunity. It was a good time to come back. And I've always loved what I did at UNO. And so it's been nice to be able to come back to that.
1: I know I mentioned uh, that I have the five and the two-year-old. You said you had a daughter. Do you have just the one? Do you have multiple? Are they two daughters. Three?
2: <laughs> two daughters, um, both of whom say, I'd never do what you do, Mom. You guys work way too hard. <laughs> I'm like, well... <laughs> You know we do. I, I'm sorry I set that role model for you, but um, now I look at them and say, uh, "Excuse me, you're working a whole lot more than I am." So my daughters um, are very, very adventuresome and very successful, and I'm very proud of them. My uh, my oldest daughter has just completed medical school oh, and, wow. in Australia. Wow. She uh, <laughs> she. This is her third kind of career step, Um, she started out Mm -hmm. in marine science and did her master's degree at University of Queensland and then came back to the States and worked in genetics and then she went back to Australia and worked Mm -hmm. in genetics and got her Australian citizenship and then went to University of Notre Dame in Perth, Australia for medical school. And she's actually, um, she actually has, in the last, Six weeks completed her first year of internship. So, yeah. So um, she's working away a whole lot, whole lot harder than I probably work. So you know, I remind them that hey, yeah, come on. My other daughter, my younger daughter, um, she was she was equally as adventuresome, but in a different way. She spent three years in Mozambique, Africa, training teachers. Wow. And um, loved it and would probably go back and may at some point go back. But she came back to the States and uh, was a fifth grade teacher, and then she got a second master's degree in library media technology, because she's um, a technology queen. She's also the science consultant for her metropolitan school district, a large metropolitan school district, because she's like a science guru. She just kind of wants to grow up to be Bill Nye, the science guy. I think if, if her husband was ever jealous of anybody, it'd probably have to be Bill Nye, the science guy. So she, um, she is here in Omaha. She and her husband are here in Omaha. And um, both of them work in the school district. Her husband is multilingual and is an interpreter wow. for the school district. So, so you know, again, it was kind of good to come back home. Yeah.
1: Of everything you've done as an SLP, what is the one thing you're the most proud of?
2: Wow. One thing I have to put it down to one uh, or a few. But
1: like, uh, what's, maybe I should say this. What's that one story when someone goes, you're an, you're an SLP. What do they do? Or what's the story? What's your go-to story? My go-to
2: story. You know what? Um, One of the things I am really very proud of, and most people probably are not even aware that I ever got involved in this at all. Um, When I was in Wichita, and it was a very serendipitous kind of connections, series of connections, but I had an opportunity to put some very different people from very broad range of geographic range Together to um, allow me to put our students together with a medical team that goes to, goes to Haiti twice a year. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And because I was in a health profession, College of Health Professions there, it did give me an opportunity to put physician assistant, PT, medical, medical technology, speech path and audiology, Um, nursing all of them together in an opportunity to spend two weeks at a time go twice a year for two weeks in Haiti this medical team is there to do surgeries Um, there's a clinic there and they certainly do clinical some clinical work too but Only the only during the time the medical team is there is there an anesthesiologist, and so it's the only time that there's surgery. So, I was able to have speech path students who stood shoulder to shoulder with surgeons in the operating room, and as one of the grad students told me, they were doing an operation on a very large facial tumor, and she said. Greatest experience I ever had was that physician showing me, you know, here's the Vegas. Look what happens when I touch it. Here's what I'm doing here and why I have to be really careful here and here and here. You can't do that in the US. Our students would never have the opportunities that putting wheels under that idea really changed lives, not just for people in Haiti, it changed lives for all of our students who went, and those are, and it's all those disciplines. So am I proud of that? I am, because you know what? It was not easy.
1: <laughs> that is the best story I've ever heard to that question.
2: You know, the politics of universities and liabilities and finance and all of those things, you just have to be willing to not take no for an answer and figure out, Okay, if that's an issue, where do we go from here? And uh, we still have that program. It's still going. And I'm really happy about that. That is so cool.
1: I almost feel bad asking you my next question now. No, go ahead. And the same idea of everything you've done as an SLP. We all have the story that we're the makes us laugh but we also may be the most embarrassed by oh and i'll let you in on mine before i ask you what yours is okay when, when i was in my adult placement or the medical placement and my supervisor was showing me how to pull the the trach button now I, I don't work with sure. with trachs. okay and he showed me and it pulled out and as soon as he pulled it out and i caught the smell the room became a tunnel I got super warm. My supervisor said my color in my face went from my normal view to whiter than the shirt I was wearing. And he just looked at me and said, hey, Matt, why don't you go sit on the heater by the window for a few minutes? (laughs) That's my most embarrassing. I almost passed out in the therapy room or in the patient's room. While wow, the patient just looked at me and just started, he just started to laugh just because oh, he could see what was happening. So that's my embarrassing story. What is Wow! your, that either makes you laugh or kind of embarrassing that you don't mind sharing with, with our audience?
2: Makes me laugh. Oh gosh, there's so <laughs> many times that, you know, I've been in situations that are so unfamiliar to me that it's like, well... Okay, um, I think, I think I would have to say, working with doctoral students, there were so many times that we just, we just had to all look at each other and laugh. Because <laughs> I was teaching a, a seminar on research ethics, and, uh, Those are like sometimes kind of tough. They're tough, you know. (laughs) You bring these cases in, and you go, "Okay, let's talk about this." And you know, where did things go wrong? What you know, what was violated here? So students have a way of bringing you up to the standard you're supposedly teaching, (laughs) and then they're saying things like, "So, Dr. Soffel." Did you keep lab books in your lab? And I'm like, uh, well, that would be no. <laughs> no. But let me go, let me explain a little further after we all got done laughing. Um, I didn't ever really have a lab. My lab was always the classroom or the home where I was seeing families or kids or whatever. So yeah. So, and I had a lot of times when I I knew that, you know, I had good laughs with families. I did home-based services when I was running their early intervention program for the Omaha Public Schools. I kept a piece of my time for home-based services. And, you know, when you're doing home-based, whatever happens, happens. (laughs) And You have a two-year-old, so you know. I I can't plan how things are going to go. And so if we're throwing spaghetti on the wall, that's just what we're doing. And we might next be bathing. So, yeah, (laughs) those, you know, those are moments that mostly, mostly you just have to say, yeah, we're all pretty human here. Yeah.
1: Kathy, you've been so awesome with your time. Is there anything that I didn't get to touch on that you were hoping to maybe talk to our audience about?
2: You know, I think there's so many issues that people consider hot topics. Some of those change, but sometimes they just morph. And I guess for me, thinking about and you ask really good questions about like, you know, what are your priorities? what what's like the most important thing to you? To me, they're all important but we have to at times prioritize a little bit because it's like it's like working in the schools you're serving the masses everybody doesn't have the cadillac everybody doesn't have the lexus but it doesn't mean that everybody can't be transported and so i guess for me taking those hot topics and keeping them as hot topics but not letting them cloud our vision for how do we move everything forward? And I've done a lot of work, a lot of behind the scenes work and a lot of kind of in front of the camera kind of work in working to develop interprofessional collaborative, whether it's practice, whether it's education, whether it's research, for me, the whole idea of collaborative efforts is what really I feel like if people know anything about me, I would hope that they know that's a passion. I'm really serious about what what do we need to do to become more collaborative, and how can I maybe help make that happen in ways in the context of this position. So. I guess that's, that's really who I am.
1: Well, I, and I, I love that. And I hope that you do well in the election and win or lose. We would love to have you back on the show to either talk about any of your wonderful research that we just didn't get to or your papers, or maybe talking about the VP of planning. There you go.
2: (laughs) And I do really appreciate the time. Thank you. And it's been so fun just chatting this is, this is what I'd like to do with any member. There you go.
1: There you go. You could have the VP of Planning Speech Science Podcast open forum. I'm just throwing that out there. Okay, I'm holding
2: you to it, Matt.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You have the radio
2: skills. (laughs) We'll make this happen.
1: The 2019 elections open up on April 16th. They run through May 29th, 2019. Uh, It'll be a three-year term starting on January 1st, 2020. Dr. Kathy Sofel, thank you so much for sitting down with us today.
2: Thank you, Matt, for having me. Have a good evening. You too. Bye-bye.
1: Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hot, joined by Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? And Michelle Wintering. Hi, guys. Episode 73 is coming to a close. It's the ele- el- Asha Elections special. It may have been our longest episode ever, uh, but again, kind of important topic talking about Asha elections.
3: Yeah, I, I feel like we we did some uh, we did some good today. Definitely spreading news of. Something that probably people didn't even know was happening. I'm sure there were a lot of SLPs out there that didn't even know that there were elections. And hopefully, listening to a podcast is more entertaining than going on Asha.com and reading about it. Uh, so, so you should definitely listen and uh, go out there and vote because these are the these are the leaders of Asha coming here. So,
1: I've never voted for Asha elections. Damn, dude, Michelle.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, like I told you, it was well into my career before I knew um, when it was and that we could, which is terrible. I, I realize that, but it's 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 something I think, unfortunately, a lot of speech pathologists and probably audiologists are not necessarily
1: aware of. And Michael, how many times have you voted? Uh, zero. Oh, OK. <laughs> I will give you credit, though, Michael. This was your brainchild last year to do. And unfortunately, we were unable to do it at this time last year. So uh, thank you for such an awesome topic idea.
3: I totally forgot that I suggested that.
1: Yes, you did. And it's been on my mind uh, ever since. Uh, We want to hear from you, though, at home. So make sure you head over to our website, podcast.com, Or if you want to find all the back episodes, it's Podcast.SpeechScience.com podcast.com that's our Podbean page uh, our patreon is patreon.com slash mwh production our phone number is 614-681-1798 and our email speech science podcast at gmail.com somebody give them the social media stuff that they need
3: so on instagram we are speech underscore science uh, if you want to shout us out at anything you can uh, leave a hashtag sspod and we will post your picture on our site or we'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Uh, definitely let us know if you're listening somehow. Uh, you can also text us at 614-681-1798 uh, and definitely get, get involved. We want this to definitely be a community podcast. So find us on social media, uh, text us, and uh, we'll definitely give you a, give you a shout out.
1: Okay, cool. Thank you. Michelle, I thought you were going to say something, and then I was like waiting and waiting. Sorry. <laughs> and I was using the nonverbal cues. Oh, our, we'll, Before we send this puppy home, what's going on this week for you guys? Anything fun and or exciting?
3: Uh, not that I can think of. Just a typical, uh, got some Got some end of the year IEP meetings coming up that I'm going to for some, some of my private clients. Uh, should be a busy week.
1: I've got 33 days left as of this recording on April 8th. If I was counting, if I was counting, what'd you say, Michelle?
0: Your countdown is on.
1: It is. I have nine days until I have a short weekend break, and then I have a total of 33 work days until summer. So, Michelle, what are you doing this week? Anything fun and or exciting?
0: Well, uh, just got back actually from a whirlwind, but awesome trip to North and South Carolina for... Ooh. for a ceremony military ceremony for um, my brother-in-law and it was pretty cool because my son James was able to meet a cousin he hadn't met yet and we got a lot of the family together so we're kind of on the unwind from travel right the hangover from from traveling especially with a (laughs) nine-month-old
1: nice Uh, for me I still got to catch up on four hours of WrestleMania that I did not watch this weekend. my son has baseball that I will be taking him to and on Sunday my high school bowlers wrap up their season with their end of the year volunteer project where we work with the Big Brothers program uh, teaching bowling uh, to the Big Brothers and the Little Brothers and, and it's kind of a cool event where there's no stress and I'm just the adult making sure that the children are safe and all my bowlers get to pass on the knowledge. So it's a pretty cool thing and I want to shout out the St. bowling team. For being pretty cool with that,
0: and I'll also uh, be buying myself a new mic this week.
1: So there you go, get the one, get the one online. Our intro music tonight is "Please Listen Carefully" by jazar It's licensed under an Attribution and Share Alike license. Our closing music is "The Slow Burn" by Kevin mcleod It's licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution license. And our bump music is "The Spellbreaker" by Tri Tachyon. It's licensed under an Attribution license. In the immortal words of Janice Wright, always be a willow, because in the storm of life, the oak will crack while the willow will bend and return to form. For the Willows, Michael McLeod and Michelle Wintering, I'm Matt Hot. Until next week, so long, everybody. Later.
0: This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com
5: and rate and subscribe to our podcasts anywhere you get your podcasts.